0: Alabama. Uh, Let me get this right. So Amazon gets to be the most woke corporation on the planet. Every day they're proving their wokeness, right? Banning books, uh, not allowing traditional charities to participate in Amazon smiles, denying President Trump access to Amazon web services and denying his campaign that every day, you know, get messages about how woke Amazon is. That's fine. I have no problem with that. Be as woke as you want. The problem is that when it comes to tax cuts, then then they want our help. When it comes to, oh, they're trying to unionize us, so we have to, might have to pay workers more, then they want our help. If you have a union problem, if you're, you think the taxes for corporations like yours, the biggest in the world, are too high, well, why don't you go get your woke, liberal, leftist friends and have them help you? Here's the bottom line, it's very simple for me. The largest, richest company in the world, and a champion of wokeness that all it does is beat up on conservatives versus hardworking Americans who just want to get paid a little more and have better work conditions. It's an easy choice.
1: All right. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. I am joined, as always, uh, by our producer, Forrest. Go on. Hardest working man in uh, in, in (laughs) left, uh, left media since he's a producer for, like, 20 shows. Uh and um uh, might be an exaggeration. Uh and <laughs> it uh feels like lately. <laughs> <laughs> in a few uh, few minutes, I'm uh, gonna be talking to uh Nomiki const uh from the majority report and the Nomiki show. Uh we are uh, going to be talking about the push for Puerto Rican statehood and why that issue might be a little bit more complicated uh than it looks at first glance. Uh, we are going to be uh, talking about friend of the show Andrew Cuomo uh, and uh, and how
2: he's, on try- of the show
1: yeah yeah how he's people are trying to cancel him for Italian culture I, I think that's uh where we've yeah. where we landed on that uh, and uh, and of course about the uh, pro act and on that theme of organized labor uh, we're going to be talking to a couple of radical teachers union activists Paul Prescott. Uh, And uh, Kenzo Shibata in the second half of the show We've also got a preview uh, Might be showing you in a few minutes If we can fit it in Of uh, the uh, patron bonus episode uh, For um, This Thursday Which is a beginner's guide to Kant uh, Part 2 But of course The voice that you just heard uh, Was Oh man, I I really should have A bottle of water with me for this (laughs) Uh, Romeo with, with little Marco, uh, and uh, and, and uh, little Marco has uh, has had a uh, road to Damascus moment. He's uh, he's he's uh, he is a uh, an ally to uh, the international working class now. He uh, he wants uh, he wants one big union to fight the bosses. Uh, okay. Marco Rubio doesn't think any of that shit. Uh, he is exactly who he's always been. I have an article about this uh, that came out in uh, Jacobin over the weekend. Uh, it's called um, uh, Don't, uh, Don't Be Fooled, uh, Little Marco is Still an Enemy of Labor. Uh, and uh, in it, uh, I break down this op-ed, which he, uh, he wrote in the uh, USA Today uh, which uh, he was he was giving a little quick uh, you know verbal version in that ridiculous video where he's wearing a t shirt and a baseball cap to show that he's just a regular guy.
2: He's a working class guy, a working a working Joe.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you uh, if you actually wa- if you actually read um, this op ed, right?
2: Yeah. This is the this is the headline of it. Um, Senator Marco Rubio: Amazon should face unionization drive without Republican support.
1: Which is is very telling, (laughs) because the way all of the other news outlets reported it, like the headline everybody else put on this was Marco Rubio comes out in favor of unionizing Amazon. But I think that the headline the USA Today put on it is actually a little bit more accurate to what he said, which is that Amazon should face this unionization effort without... uh, Without Republican support, yeah, uh, yeah, and, so, uh,
2: so, and 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 his reasoning is way more about culture war um, issues. You no, know, it's,
1: it's almost yeah. entirely <laughs> about culture war issues. So he, uh, you know, in um, well, actually, in that clip we played at the beginning, mm-hmm. it's the cold open. Uh, he uses the word wages, uh, you know, higher wages, which is actually a phrase that never appears anywhere in the op-ed. Uh, he he, like the word wages does not come up once. Uh, he uses working conditions and workplace conditions once each in the yeah. entire op-ed. Uh, and when he says uh, workplace conditions, he literally cannot be bothered to stay on topic for an entire sentence. I, I, I want to just read you a couple sentences, give a flavor. All right, uniquely malicious corporate behavior like Amazon's justifies a more adversarial approach to labor relations. It's no fault of Amazon's workers. They feel the only option available to them to protect themselves against bad faith is to form a union. Today, it might be workplace conditions, but tomorrow it might be a requirement that the workers embrace management's latest woke human resources fad. So he literally can't stay on the workplace. Like, here are some things that he didn't mention that he could have mentioned in this op-ed. He could have mentioned... Uh, that Amazon uh, has a crazy high rate of injuries, uh, even for the warehouse industry. Uh, it's like nine point six per thousand. Uh, uh, per, you know, so which is again, even for warehouses, is outrageous. Uh, that they have this uh, system of quotas uh, where you end up having like scanned a new package like once every eleven seconds, as of one you know report from uh, I want to say like last year. Uh, so. That's enforced by this constant electronic surveillance. So severe, like this is what we're talking about. We talking about workplace conditions that people have literally like there are reports of warehouses where people uh, have to pee in bottles uh, because they don't want to get up to use the bathroom because they're, they're literally being surveilled while they go to the bathroom to see how many steps they take. So if you yeah. take shortest possible route to the bathroom how many minutes they spend there how many steps they take back and meanwhile they're losing you know quote the uh, they're getting behind on the uh, on the quotas but- and every
2: and every movement while they're moving boxes and while they're like moving things is being tracked too um so that you know just to make like a more um i guess a more efficient efficient way of moving which isn't what you do to human beings that are working that's what you do to machines you know what i mean like they, they're treated pretty much as machines and as um so that kind of follows in with the, with the bathroom breaks thing, because
1: no, you know exactly. they're, it's going to be
2: later on. They're going to say, you can only move these like this, this way. And if you're injured or something on the job, like you're going to have to push through that.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's a, uh, I mean, yeah, it's the, the Karl Marx line about, you know, treating, uh, worker is an appendage of flesh to the machine of steel uh which which by the way ties right into uh the uh, beginner's guide to Kant on reducing people to mere means to an end but uh but again little Marco doesn't give a shit about any of that he doesn't even really pretend to here right like there's there's the one line where he mentions working conditions without specifying what he means and there's this one part of one sentence where he says workplace conditions but of course it's like he's, you know, it's it's like he's a uh, he's a junkie, and and there's something else he's supposed to pay pay attention to, but there is a needle, uh, sure. you know, that's, that's like off on the other side of the table. He keeps looking back at it. He can't keep his eyes yeah. away from it. All he cares about in this op-ed is the culture war to the like, so his big uh, complaints were uh, some super homophobic sounding book called when Harry became Sally, that Amazon wouldn't sell it. And that um, he, he also kind of referred to this in the clip that he, that they wouldn't um, that there are some charities that they won't allow to participate in the Amazon smile program because the Southern poverty law center classifies them as hate groups. And they use that list to decide uh, you know which charities you know they'll work with, uh, like those are his big complaints. Uh, and to the extent that he can be bothered to pretend even that he's interested in economics here, um, really, like other than these two glancing references to unspecified work condition, working conditions, the economic thing that he's talking about isn't even about the workers. Again, wages are never once mentioned in this op-ed. What he uh, what he's talking about is Amazon crushing small businesses, which, of course, are a traditional conservative constituency, small business owners. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, in the op-ed, right, because, uh, look, plenty of conservative small business owners and, of course, big business owners who he takes donations from, uh, are afraid of their own workers unionizing and so you know he he goes out of his way in the op-ed to make it abundantly clear that he's still an enemy of unions in general he says a bunch of things in the op-ed like uh, adversarial uh, labor relations and of course i mean If it's not adversarial, I don't know what the fuck the point of the union is. But uh uh and he he
2: casts it, he casts it as an individual struggle, um, like between Amazon itself as like a like he calls it like a global corporation and workers in America. So he's kind of casting like this as a specific fight between like a multinational corporation, which most fucking corporations are, but he only sees it as, you know, this one struggle between the biggest in the world and then like the small, the small workers working there in well, this
1: specific case. To, because, yeah, to the extent that he's yeah. even talking about the workers, uh, uh, which again is not for very much, like it literally takes up like a few sentences, you know, like not more than five or six sentences scattered around the op-ed is even talking about the workers and when he does it's an incredibly vague way there's nothing about compensation there's certainly no details about working conditions uh, but yeah he says because uh, it's global he says if a good American company is targeted for unionization of course he's against that and it's weird because he, he doesn't quite give an example of a good American company. He says like certain American automakers. It's like which ones, right? Tell me the American automakers that uh, like haven't outsourced any part of their operation, you know, to uh, to other countries. I want to know which ones those are. Uh, but in would he say that uh, adversarial labor relations, you know, he thinks are uh, he says are generally bad. Uh, both for companies and uh, and for workers he claims because uh, they because um, the adversarial labor relations, you know having unions uh, makes companies more vulnerable to foreign competition and the uh, the foreign competition and that in turn uh, means um, you know means that the workers end up out of a job. Uh, and so, it's weird because he never explains exact. And oh, and he says uh, that uh, that you, the right of workers to form a union in practice becomes a requirement that uh, companies allow um, the allow uh, left wing social organizers. That's the phrase he uses: left wing social organizers to take over the workplace. Um, and even in the Amazon case, he says uh, it's. Um, that uh it isn't clear this these are his exact words it isn't clear whether well he's talking about the drive to unionize the warehouse in Bessemer is primarily driven by complaints from its workers agitation from democratic operatives or just the fact that Jeff Bezos has now become the first person in history worth 200 billion dollars so that agitation by democratic operatives I mean that's like like he like that phrase, right? Like, even in this case, he can't pretend not to hate anyone trying to organize a union. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, that's like he's like that turd of phrase. He sounds like a Southern sheriff, you know, talking about how, you know, his local Negroes were perfectly content until, you know, these outside agitators, you know, came in and started riling them up.
2: Yeah. He, he also says a thing about like, um, the only the only choice they had left was to unionize or something, which as if like as if there were like a bunch of like roads they could have gotten off on where uh Amazon would have would have like made a deal with them to pay them better or something and they wouldn't have needed to unionize but because Amazon Yeah has, yeah
1: he, he sort of has yeah. these two threads. On the one hand Amazon is so bad mostly for culture war reasons. Yeah right? like he says uh because and he tries to turn all the culture war crap into a pseudo economic populist thing and the the trick is that he says oh amazon is waging a war on working class values but of course working class values uh just means conservative values uh which i mean obviously empirically they're um you know huge percentages of the working class on every side of every culture war issue that's how the culture war works like that's one of the reasons that culture war polarization is so bad for trying to organize people economically because it's, you know, cause it does tend to, uh, uh, to cut, you know, like the, the broader population in half, you know, the more people are focused on that. So, you know, he's obviously just wrong, right? I mean, there are obviously many millions of working class people who he would consider to be do woke. And there are, uh, and also of course, the nice thing about that cheat code, that working class values is it lets him pretend that small business owners or frankly, even big business owners who are conservative Republicans sort of count as being somehow culturally working class.
2: Yeah. I, I couldn't find I couldn't find it somehow, but I was thinking about that Steven Crowder opening where he's like, by working class, we mean small business owners. We mean large business owners, even million dollar businesses. Like working class becomes people who work as a, like conservative people who work. As as
3: yeah,
2: a, yeah. As a yeah. class formation. No, exactly.
1: Um, uh, and and so there are really two threads here. Uh, to I mean, whatever. It's a weird, sloppy article. It looked like I mean, it was so sloppy. I actually think he might have written it himself. Uh, <laughs> like like even he seems
2: though, to have gotten a, a PR person between that the article and that video.
1: Yeah, um, of I mean, even grammatically, of- it's like a weird article. But yeah. in, um, but to the extent that he has an argument, he has two arguments. One of them is. Amazon is so bad, mostly for culture war reasons uh, and because of small businesses, so it really has nothing to do with the workers. Uh, but Amazon is so bad that this normally horrible thing that the workers are doing, forming a union, is like understandable. He says they're uniquely malicious. They're not like a good American company. So it's forgivable that they're doing this generally bad thing, organizing a union. That's one thread. Uh, where he says things like "always oh, standing with the workers," but then the other thread is he says, "Look, unions are terrible. They they they're bad for the workers because they lose their jobs because the companies are vulnerable to foreign competition. Uh, you shouldn't have adversarial labor relations, but screw Amazon, right? So like he says things uh, like um, Amazon shouldn't be able to wage war against working class values, and then expect Republicans to have their back." when they're trying to fight off a unionization effort Uh, or he says that, um, that uh, Amazon uh, should have to, you know, because it's facing this unionization effort, they should have to live according to the same progressive values. He says that they're trying to push on everyone else. So really like that second one, I think is much more the real argument, which is essentially like Rubio, um, I mean, it's it, it's almost like he's like a uh, he's like a cartoon gangster, you know, uh, being like, "Hey, so some nice business you have here. It'd be a uh, it'd be a real shame if someone unionized it, and and we yeah. yeah. the party weren't there to protect you against unionizing like we normally <laughs> would, like because taken seriously, if he really believes that unionization is bad because it opens them up to you know competitors." Uh, and he's really concerned about Amazon I and mean, crushed saw small business. That it's not really has nothing to do with the concern for the workers at all. It's more like, hey, these guys uh, are on the liberal side of the culture war, and um, and frankly, they're not paying up, right? He doesn't make this explicit, but I think like uh, reading between the lines a little, the fact that Jeff Bezos doesn't, you know, donate to, you know, isn't a Republican donor is probably a big part of this too, you know. But like. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, they're not paying you know their protection money, so screw them. We'll let them burn. Uh, you know, and I I guess look, I, I wanna I want to switch gears and, and play the preview for uh for the Thursday episode, but I I just uh before Nomiki comes on. But like this is always what kills me about this. Like we were talking about this in a different way last week with the uh the Greenwald, you know, uh Carl you know, Carlson Bannon stuff. Uh, but it's it's really the same thing. And it's just, like, it makes me sad, right? You know, because it's any, all of this stuff, it's like, I, I don't know how else to put it except just, like, don't be a fucking rube, right? None of these people are economic populists in any way that's not a complete joke. I mean, they're they're all Rubio, Rubio, um, you know, Tucker Carlson, Steve Bannon, Trump. Oh, like, like, um,
2: another, another. I guess, kind of the same, kind of on the like, same. Like, like,
1: like it's, it's not just that they're not like left-wing social Democrats, uh, which they're certainly not, you know, on economic issues, right? Like if there really yeah. were, like if there really were socially conservative people who had social democratic positions on economics in the United States, then we'd have some dilemmas in our hands about what to do about them, you know, like, yeah. uh, but we don't have those dilemmas because those people just don't exist in this country. Not only are they not like left-wing social Democrats, every single one of those people that I mentioned is like way to the right of the Biden administration on economic issues. Yeah.
2: Well, a perfect, a perfect example, I guess. Um, Sorry. I thought of, I thought of in the middle of you saying this was uh, Josh Hawley. Um, I I don't remember. I think it was CPAC. He was speaking in front of um, pretty recently and he came out and said, um, he came out and said something about how, the oligarchy, like he's like he's like, we need to fight the oligarchy, which is like it's like they find these like you know uh, populist buzzwords, you know what I mean? Like oligarchy is a perfect example, and then in his definition, oligarchy is just tech companies, like it's just tech companies, and the issue that the oligarchy is is waging on Republican voters is just like tech censorship, which is an issue, but that's not the main like point of you know what I mean? Like um, any yeah. kind of populism, like
1: no, of yeah, exactly right? Like, yes, I mean, tech censorship is bad, although I'd also argue that they don't like it because, um, you know, they think they're the ones, uh, you know, getting censored. I mean, none of these people are exactly uh, are exactly known for their deep principled, you know, commitment to, um, uh, you know, to free speech. Like, I, I'm old enough to remember the Bush years, let's put it that way. But like, but yes, tech censorship is bad. But the point is that for them, it's, it's all about the culture war. And, uh, and yeah, even that phrase oligopoly, right, you know, it's like, uh, in context, what they're talking about is that, like, to the extent that there's any kind of like economic critique at all with the oligopoly, uh, it's just the fact that they that these people that like, companies like this are are bad for uh you know for like small businesses in the republican base it has absolutely nothing. yeah but even
2: then they don't usually talk about that like i i feel like i feel like if every social media site was like parlor they wouldn't have a complaint you know what i mean like
1: i, no, I feel I like think when that's it's true too but i mean like yeah. i think to the extent that it they are gestured at something economic with the uh uh, the oligopoly stuff. Uh, it's it's not economic stuff about workers. You know, it's it's economic stuff about like smaller businesses. You know, that are that are competing with them. Uh, okay, I, I do want to show. Um, oh, wait, I
2: just want to do the. It's Rubio. To, oh yeah, yeah. Let's get, let's do
4: it. yeah. Marco on to refute President Obama's speech. Do you remember that catastrophe? And he's like this. And we will huh ah, ah, I need water. Help me. I need water. Help. <laughs> and he's this is on live television. This total choke artist.
5: It's Rubio. <laughs> That's
6: what
7: it's
1: Unbelievable. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, God. I, uh, man. Uh, I fucking missed Michael Brooks. That was like his favorite Trump bit. But, uh, I no, you know. I don't
2: think I ever, I don't think I ever, uh, saw it until I started watching his show and he would play it constantly. Like before <laughs> I even met Michael, like I think, uh, like majority yeah,
1: of people. <laughs> Oh fuck! All right, uh, all right. Before we do the uh, the clip for the Patriot bonus episode, just a couple of um, couple of other quick things. Uh, so, um, uh, first, um, the uh, so we are about halfway through March. So, in uh, just about six weeks, uh, my uh, my new book comes out. So that's uh, canceling comedians uh, while the uh, while the world burns: a uh, critique of the contemporary left. Uh, you can get it from uh, Red Emma's. So you can pre-order, it. it comes out on May 1st. So that's Red Emma's, like, like Emma like Emma Goldman, redemmas.org. Uh, so uh, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, Critique of the Contemporary Left, out on May Day. Uh, second thing uh, that uh, should, should plug while I'm thinking about it is uh, starting about a month before that. So in a little over two weeks. Uh, you can uh, take um, classes from me or from a bunch of other people uh, at uh, Michael Albert's uh, School for, of, uh, social for Social and Cultural Change. Uh, so um, that is, uh, we should get the, um, uh, anyway, okay. Uh, later on, we should we should edit those those graphics so the uh, the URLs are in these. But it's uh, SSCC, so for School for Social and Cultural Change, SSCC.teachable.com. Uh, so uh, Albert himself is teaching a couple of classes. Noam Chomsky is teaching a class. they are like something like 12 people. But I'm doing one uh, called Logic for Left-Wing Debaters and Activists. That's in April and May. It's an eight-week class. Uh, Online class at the uh, School for Social and Cultural Change So just want to make sure I said that And then um, Finally before we show the clip We'll do a little preview now And then we'll uh, run another preview on Thursday Like usual but if you want to um, uh, But if you want The full episode of course uh, For uh, for five bucks a month uh, You can uh, become a patron At um, uh, uh, Patreon.com Slash Ben Burgess Uh, And you get the weekly uh, bonus episode on Thursday. Uh, You get uh, the, um, uh, you get uh, regularly scheduled access to the discord. You get uh, regularly scheduled at least once a month, uh, discord office hours, group voice chats. Uh, uh, You get, uh, well, we all, we always unlock these pretty soon. You know, I think by the end of the month, but you certainly get early access to the monthly Sopranos uh, bonus episode with, uh, uh, Big Waz and uh, Nando Vila, and Mike Racine, uh and then you know we're also starting the the monthly um, you know Discord movie nights. So um, if you possibly can, uh, please do do that. You know it's uh, you know support what we're doing here, keep it going. Uh, but with all of that, uh, all of that said, having shilled all the things that need to be shilled, uh let's uh, let's watch. Uh, the preview. Uh, so this is uh, the patron bonus episode for this week. It's a beginner's guide to Kant, uh, part two with Russ Briglia Matt McManus, and Ryan Lake. Kant jokes?
5: I can't, can't think, think of think
1: any. Of any. Uh, uh, <laughs> we both it was coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, fair enough. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So uh, you know, last time you know we were really focused on uh, the metaphysics, uh, and we did a little bit of the um, the free will stuff then, which is which is kind of the uh, most obvious link uh, between the uh, the metaphysics and the ethics. Uh, but I want to um, you know, transition into uh, into the ethics uh, today. Uh, so uh, I guess one way to to do that would be to, to kind of you know keeping on the uh, the free will uh, th- you know through line uh, to, would be to uh, to talk about what you know Kant thinks about autonomy and heteronomy and all of that because that's that's going to then like get to uh, you know then that's that's going to get to his his view about moral worth you know which 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 will you know come up when we actually do the categorical imperative. So, uh, Ryan, you want to uh, you want to get us started on that? Um, yeah,
5: I mean, I, so I guess the very basic sense of uh, like autonomy uh, for uh, a person is truly autonomous if they are self governing. So if their actions are truly their own um, actions that are guided by their own reason, actions that are for ends that they themselves have chosen. Um, Then actions are are heteronomous if they're driven by something external to them or something external to their reason so driven by Impulses or driven by um, external influences or under the control of other people Um, Yes, so that's the basic distinction between those two
1: Yeah, so this is like um, You know this like where he takes this is a little counterintuitive even though Mm -hmm even though that initial explanation sounds like, Oh yeah. Okay. I get what he means by that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know, you're acting autonomously. If you're acting on ends, you chose for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're acting heteronomously, which is just, you know, otherwise than autonomously. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, uh, if you're acting on ends that come from outside of yourself so far, so good. Uh, and, but, uh, where it gets confusing is that you would think that, uh, like, you, you might think uh, that, okay, so uh, this, this, mean, like, we're just talking, you know, we're just acting, if we're acting autonomously on ends that we each sort of decide to, you know, to give ourselves, you know, based on whatever happens to uh, to matter to us, but that's, that's, like, almost the opposite of what he means.
8: Mm-hmm. yeah. So- I was going to say, like, the way I interpret this is the groundwork to the metaphysics of morals, uh, which is his major work in moral philosophy, uh, even though he seems to have thought that the critique of practical reason uh, and the metaphysics of morals uh, were more important, right? This is the one that everyone remembers. Uh, I think it's a very confusing book in a lot of ways, but confusing in an interesting way, a very productive way, uh, because as Derek Parfit pointed out in On What Matters, you'd be hard for us to find another 80 pages in philosophy uh, that have been as wildly influential right? And everyone has their own thoughts uh, on even sections of this book, uh, Mm -hmm. and they emphasize different parts to it. Uh, I tend to think it's a confusing book and because Kant tends to insist that everything in it fits together in a systematic fashion, right? Uh, We all know Kant loves his systems because he's a German philosopher, right? And so it's all got to fit together seamlessly somehow. Uh, I don't actually think that it does, right? I think that a lot of the stuff in the book exists in tension with one another or doesn't, at least doesn't necessitate um, other components of a system. Uh, The two things that I tend to take away from it are the stuff about autonomy, Uh, you know, and I think that there's two main ways that he formulates it. One is at the beginning of the book where he stresses this idea that the only thing that can have intrinsic worth in the world is the goodwill, right, you know, the Mm -hmm. autonomous will to do your duty. Uh, And I think the second point where he really foregrounds this emphasis on autonomy uh, is in the second formulation of the categorical imperative, right? Uh, the formula for being an end in and in itself, as it's sometimes called, right? That you must always act in such a way to treat your humanity, both in others and in yourself, uh, never as a means, but always as an end, right? Uh, a lot of the other stuff that people emphasize when it comes to this book and Kantian morality uh, is its rule oriented form, which is expressed in the yeah. first iteration of the categorical imperative, which we can talk about. Right. Right? Yeah. I'm not sure that that has any intrinsic connection to autonomy. Uh, except in the sense that you're supposed to be a rule giver to your for yourself right yeah um and i, I do understand why he might think that there's a connection there but mm-hmm. uh, i'm not convinced that it's as technically necessary uh as he stresses
5: yeah i mean he wants to he wants to insist that they're the same like these these yeah. have exactly the same upshots i mean one way you could argue for the connection is it seems like you can derive the second formulation from the first formulation because you you know you arguably couldn't have a universal consistent rule and favor of treating people as mere means to an end. Um so you can maybe derive the second world from the first rule, but yeah. it's not entirely clear that they are Yeah, the but same it like
1: you could derive this the, yeah, uh, the first, the first the world. from the second. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, and it also seems like the first one is gonna so uh just to since this is a beginner's guide, right? Just to, <laughs> <Sorry>. separate, <laughs> yes. you know, just to back up, uh, so the first formulation uh, you know there are other ones the kingdom of ends and whatever but like the two best note formulations are uh you should only act on that maxim that you could will be a universal law um, uh, could is important uh this is this is not uh, like people you know this is not really utilitarianism watch mm-hmm. the uh, philosophy Friday things we did about that uh Uh, it's, it's not that, you know, it's not like only act on that maxim that you'd want to have be a universal law or would have good consequences. If it were a universal law, Mm -hmm. it's only act on that maxim. You could be a universal law, meaning that it would be, uh, inconsistent. Um, maybe, you know, maybe that it'd be intrinsically inconsistent, but certainly that it'd be inconsistent with your, with your, your purposes and Mm act in that way. Uh, for it to be a universally practiced rule, mm-hmm. uh, and when you're sort of, and then the the second one, which was uh, which was mentioned, is the uh, which, uh, which 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 Matt mentioned earlier, was uh, always treat humanity, whether in yourself or in another, as a end in itself and not merely as a means to an end. So don't treat people as means, you know, merely as means to an end. Uh, as one of my and, friends put it, memorably, "Don't be an asshole to others." You know. Yeah. 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 Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh uh yeah so and the same way there's the would could confusion with the the first one uh I, I think that a an easy thing to miss the first time you hear about the second one is the merely a means to an end mm-hmm. but yeah. it's totally fine to treat other people as as means to an end right you know like mm-hmm. when, you know what i um you know bought this cup of coffee. Right, you know, I was, I was treating the barista as a, you know, as a means to an end of getting coffee, and that's that's okay. Mm-hmm. And even in a, you know, advanced communist society where you didn't have money or whatever, like you know, like you, you'd still uh, every time you ask somebody to help you move the cou- your couch, you know, right, you're you're treating them as a means to an end. Uh, it would be lunacy to think that that was morally wrong, and Kant doesn't think that. Right, he mm-hmm. thinks it's it's wrong to treat people merely as means to an end. Yeah. To an end. Yeah. So, um. Yeah. Do you want to jump in on
7: that, Russ? Well, yeah, I mean Matt and Ryan both made both made an important points. And I think like just start to start with with Ryan when he said um yeah, you know, it's the 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 universal element of the first articulation of the categorical imperative. Mm-hmm. Act so that you know your action can serve or could serve as the um, the basis for a, a, you know, a universal maxim, even though, as um, Ryan was also saying, and I think Matt, Matt as well, that um, the question of autonomy versus versus heteronomy, right? Like, there's this tension in Kant. I think Kant doesn't necessarily think that it's that it's intention, but reading Kant between um, the subjective which we think of as you yeah. know, purely individualistic and the universal, right? So mm-hmm. Kant's ethics is this strange ethics of the subjective universal, because mm-hmm. the law is supposed to be, um, the moral law is supposed to be, you know, freely given uh, mm-hmm. and decided upon by the subject, him or herself. But, in order for it to be the moral law, it has to have a universal uh, yeah. ability or yeah, a universal yeah. function. <clears throat> and, yeah, and so there was another thing as well. I forget if it was if it was Matt or Ryan, but you know, Kant's. I think I mentioned this last time. Kant, the fancy term for what Kantian ethics is is uh, deontology, which mm-hmm. basically is the fancy term for for duty. It's mm-hmm. a duty based ethics, and what's interesting, and I tend to focus. On this element of it, more probably because being a student of 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 Zizek's, like I, I can't think of Kant divorced from uh, from psychoanalysis. Like somebody <laughs> like somebody like Freud in I think it's in his book Beyond the Pleasure Principle. I mean, explicitly links the Freudian notion of uh, of the categorical imperative of duty to the uh, psychoanalytic concept of of the superego. Mm-hmm. and. The super ego is like the moral agency that gives you that gives the ego the law, um, and it feels you know it doesn't feel like you have a lot of freedom when you're being bombarded with this imperative from from the superego. ego. Yeah. Um, you could say, okay, well, super ego is an, an, an internalization of of the law, but still, and so. I don't want to go too, I know this is beginner's guide. I don't want to go yeah. too far out and delve into psychoanalysis, but I think what's interesting about that is that this, the notion of freedom is very tricky in Kant yeah. because mm-hmm. if it is the duty, if you yeah. determine that it is your duty to do something that, um, that brings pain to yourself, for instance, and ethical, the ethical act, like doing the good often involves um, harm or pain to oneself. In order to help others or, you know, it, this notion of the good that actually when you conform to the moral law and you no no one else tells you what the moral law is in Kant, like the subject is radically free to decide what that is. But you often feel as though you have no other, you have no
5: other choice. Yeah, um, it's a very, yeah, it's a very yeah. strange notion of autonomy. It's like, yeah. if, if you do really anything like other than choose anything other than the categorical imperative, you're no longer autonomous.
1: All right. Uh, so again, if you want the, uh, the full discussion, that's the beginner's guide to Kant uh, part, uh, part two, uh, which is uh, going to be episode 41 of out uh, this Thursday uh, for, uh, for patrons, then go head over to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, it's a uh, abrupt transition. I know, but uh, we want to come, uh, come back down to earth. Uh, and uh, and talk about a little bit of uh, real world politics, uh, with uh, with somebody who uh, I always really enjoy talking to. I'm, I'm really uh, really happy to to have her on the show finally. Uh, so, uh, Nomiki Const uh, from uh, the uh, Majority Report and the uh, Nomiki Show. Uh, so, uh, Nomiki, how are you doing? Oh,
9: I'm I'm as great as one can be. Uh, this much closer to getting a vaccine. So nice. I can walk outside and <laughs> get some fresh air.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. I was on the, uh, I was on the phone with the uh, with the uh, hospital around here trying to figure out when I could at least sign up for it, and they uh, right now they are not making it easy to figure out.
9: It's. It, I've noticed it depends on the state, um, yeah. which is not a surprise, but. but you know, there are certain exceptions. For me, it's like I I am around a lot of people, and my parents in caregiving and all that kind of stuff. So, there might be an in as long as I can keep you know the the older people
1: around me safe. So, Fair we'll enough. see.
9: We'll see by May. You know, <laughs> they say.
1: Yeah, can uh, can go out and and like see other human beings, and you know have uh, um. Yeah. That's, that sounds really, really, really nice. I mean, we not are not being afraid only- of people
9: coughing on you. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm, I'm just annoyed by all the, like the anti-maskers and I was on a flight and I had to fly for, for our job. And, um, and I got on this flight and all these people had masks on and then they decided to take them off. This is like two weeks ago. And they kept making announcements and they kept going up to people, but there's a point where there's like 50 people without a mask on or they're just pulling it down. Yeah. That's why you get the yeah. vaccine.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that that is that is incredibly like like well let's, let's, let's put it this way. I'm equally annoyed by the people who won't, you know, who won't wear a mask and by the fact that like it's taking, you know, this long, we can't just like all get vaccinated so we can go back to interacting in normal ways and not having to like have like all this like treat it like it's a uh it's a zombie movie and it's like oh crap i'm getting too close you know <laughs> like I, <laughs> I,
9: are you I getting that like, thing where you're watching a movie i'm sorry <laughs> no i feel like i am
2: the I feel like i'm the last person that's gonna end up getting a vaccine in the whole country because like i feel like all the boxes that need to be checked in new york i fall short of all of them like you know what i mean like too young to get a vaccine working at home as a podcast producer, like. <laughs> Like this is every every possible category. I'm just like, nope, that's not me.
9: <laughs> I've noticed that like I'm watching movies now and I'm like, why are they so close? What are they doing? Why why are they breathing each other? Don't touch them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You get, the, uh, you get nervous even, you know, you're so used to thinking about this stuff. That you know, like, oh my god, you know, it's like tody Tony is just like sitting there at the bottom bang, nobody's dis social distancing, you know. <laughs> <Inside>? <laughs> <What are they? laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, did, those, did those strippers get vaccinated, Tony? Get away <laughs> from them! <laughs>
3: exactly, exactly.
1: You know, Tony oh. was
9: a Trump supporter. You know it.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think they did establish. Uh, there's an episode where Carmella mentions voting for Bush. I think so. Um, and then gonna... uh,
2: Tony says uh, Dick Cheney for president of the motherfucking universe because Dick Cheney gave him so. Like, there's one episode where he's like, he's like, they say something, and he's like, I'll put it to you this way. He's like Dick Cheney for president of the universe. Oh my
3: God. He <laughs>
2: said
1: so much. Yeah. Yeah. He's not a good guy. That's what I got out of that. Um, so uh, so since uh, I know you've done a lot about this, the subject and, uh, and I cards on the table uh, know essentially nothing about it. So, uh, so you, you can, you can educate me uh us. Uh, do you want, to, uh, you want to show the uh, Puerto Rico clip? Yeah.
9: Oh, man. oh, this woman.
4: <laughs> That's the reason we demand and deserve statehood for Puerto Rico now. The mm. islands overwhelmingly voted for statehood in 2012 by a margin of sixty-one <laughs> percent. And in June of last year, ninety-seven percent of the island voted again for statehood. That's the request that brought me here.
7: We hear pleas of equality from our fellow Americans back on the island. And we must recognize that a majority has asked us for statehood and we must respect it. So today we act. Today we introduce the Puerto Rico Statehood Admissions Act. Today
10: it establishes a framework for admission, including a presidential proclamation upon its passage a ratification vote, the election of U.S. senators and representatives, and the continuity of laws, government, and obligations.
11: You know, we like to say, Americans, were all created equal, but some of us are more equal than others. And it's time to make sure that all
8: of those Americans in Puerto Rico have the same representation, the same ability to fight for what is better and what is best in Washington, D.C., as all of us in other states enjoy.
5: Mr. Speaker, I had the privilege of last Sunday to be an observer in Puerto Rico for the plebiscite and watch the people go make the decision they'd like to be the 51st state.
9: Having said all this, even though I personally favor statehood, it's not my place to substitute my views for the views of the people of Puerto Rico. If they wished to remain a territory or to become a nation, I would honor that wish. However, the majority of voters have chosen statehood. And so I intend to respect that choice.
12: Uh, The people of Puerto Rico have spoken. The majority of the Puerto Rican electorate uh, voted for statehood. And when the people have spoken, we in Congress have an obligation to legislate what the people voted for. That is democracy, that is self-determination, that is decolonization. Legislating the will of the people is what we do in a democratic society. A wise person once said, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu. Statehood means a seat at the table for Puerto Rico. It means more resources and more representation. It means two US senators and five members of Congress. It means billions of dollars in new funding for healthcare and social services and food and all the necessities of life. A statehood would bring legal equality to Puerto Rico. And uh,
13: uh, I'm also for Puerto Rican statehood, um, which is also long overdue. And uh, you know, and and one of the the uh, the it's it's like a statement I make is that if Puerto Ricans looked like Swedes, they would have been Americans a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs>
14: Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez is, of course, arguably, maybe the most prominent Puerto Rican member of
9: Congress, because she's not supportive outright of statehood in the same way that you are, and her bill does call for self-determination. I'm curious if you think that hurts your movement at all to achieve statehood.
5: Well, I would love to have her support, and I don't rule out convincing her
8: uh, to to join uh, uh, me in the way that I'm approaching this. What I anticipate is that there'll be uh, considerable support for
5: um, a, a statehood bill uh, this, in this Congress.
1: All right, so uh, that is uh, that is some very widespread uh, uh, support. Sounds pretty straightforward. Why is this more complicated than, than we'd think from that?
9: <laughs> because
1: I love that their numbers are like, 97% of the
9: island vote, it's bullshit. Okay, so first off, if these were such important votes that they've had m- many times on the island, then they would be uh, deemed verified by places like the UN and they haven't. And part of that is, uh, the vote that happened in, 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 uh, 2020, just this last year, for instance, was a vote in which there were only two options. And I'll get to that in a second, why that's important. Two options. Are you for statehood? Are you against statehood? In which just about half the island voted, literally turned out and voted, voted. Um, now to make things more complicated, the island Everything is based in what the island's status is. The po- the political system of the island, all business is conducted in Spanish. So let's just start with that. It's conducted in Spanish, people um, on the island, and I'm only speaking based on my reporting. I will never, ever, ever speak on behalf of any Puerto Rican. I want to make that very, very, very clear. It's really just based on um, having worked there extensively over the last three years, working on a documentary there as we speak. Uh, not there right now, but but as we speak, working on a documentary. Everything is rooted in what is the status of the island since since America invaded and 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 Spain basically uh, pulled out their colonial take uh, uh, power over the island. We became the power. There have there has never been an option for the Puerto Ricans on the island to determine what they they should be or could be. Um, there's a long legacy of horrifying actions by the U.S. government that lingers in the bones and the essence and the soul of every Puerto Rican on the island and off the island, understanding what the connection between the U.S. government is, the colonial power, and the island's power. Start with this. You have a a legislative body in Puerto Rico, you know, just like everywhere else. And you have a governor in Puerto Rico and they set the budget and they set the laws. But guess what? It doesn't matter what they set because there is an appointed fiscal oversight board that is connected to hedge funds in New York City and in Boston uh, who can determine whatever they want, overrule and decide where the island's finances go. And so while uh, people who live on the island, Puerto Ricans who live on the island, uh, natives, will spend 70% of their tax dollars on paying this this the debt which is, you know, pretty much uh, imposed by the US government and Wall Street. You have billionaires and millionaires moving to the island and paying zero taxes and buying up all the distressed properties pre-maria post-maria uh, and of course that money's not going anywhere. So you know, there are incentives. The statehood party, now there are several parties on the island. There's two major parties. There's another growing new party. Um, and then there's the independence movement, which was pretty much killed, um, you know, from from the 20s into the, the late 60s. Um, but it's had its strongest turnout this last, this last cycle.
3: Mm-hmm.
9: The two major parties, the Commonwealth Party and the statehood party, have always been the two major parties. And the Commonwealth is sort of like um, – you know, we're okay with what's going on, the status. The independents obviously want to be independent. And uh, this new movement is like, we don't want to even talk about status. We just want to talk about the issues of the island, which, you know, is questionable. Um, But the statehood party has always been traditionally conservative. They are, uh, they voted against, I have a list here. Let me just go through some of the things, the statehood party. First off, pro-statehood was part of the Republican, the national Republican party. Um, It was on the, the platform of the National Republican Party since George H.W. Bush, the first George Bush. Um, they have voted against LGBTQ issues. They've uh, voted uh, against the protection of natural reserves. Uh, they voted against uh, uh, the first openly LGBTQ member of the PR Puerto Rican Supreme Court. Um, they are passionately against gender equity and uh, equity related to sexual orientation. Uh, they voted against a bill to prohibit conversion therapy. I mean, we're talking religious right. right. Yet they've partnered up. And this is, of course, I'm glad you mentioned this. Jennifer Gonzalez is the resident commissioner who's the non-voting congressperson on, um, in Congress who presented this bill. She was, uh, I believe, chair of Latinos for Trump. So when... You see good, well-meaning liberals on MSNBC or people like Robert Reich call for statehood. First off, it's not up to you to decide. And second, you know, do a little research. The parties on the island are not Democrat versus Republican. Uh, It's much more complicated. And sometimes those parties will align with different parties on the mainland because of their own interests. And, you know, the most recent reflection would be that um, the Democratic National Committee – through a a an undemocratic process, I might add, uh, voted to have statehood as the official platform on the official platform, the DNC. But um, the DNC members from the island, there was actually a coup there, and those DNC members are now statehooders when previously they were not. So that's just a brief summary
1: <laughs> overview. So
2: there's this there's a second um bill I guess that AOC yes. um, is putting out and
9: uh...
1: Media of Alaska's. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So, so, what is the uh, so the AOC one is an estatehood one. So, what is the AOC one?
9: So the 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 of Velasquez. That's important because she's been a longtime proponent of of this. Uh, and the, the Nidia of Velasquez and who's from New York. Uh, and the AOC bill is called the Puerto Rico Self Determination Act, which is going to be reintroduced, uh, I believe, this week. And it basically states that after, you know, 123 years, Puerto Rico has been in a colony of the United States. And it's uh, the Biden-Harris administration has promised to give equal or fair, um, uh, what's the best way of saying this, Uh, a fair process. And Mm -hmm. essentially this this act would create a process, create a, a convention, I guess is the best way of saying it. Uh, to to create an inclusive and binding uh, path to self determination, it's a little processy, but you know it involves many Puerto Rican activist groups, diaspora groups, um, people from the island, and and. And in the States, because there's a very large diaspora movement in the States, I think it's over 2 million people at this point, probably even more um, after Maria, it's hard to calculate. And, you know, their whole whole take is, you know, if we're gonna do this, we need to do this fairly. And we need to have all parties at the table, not just statehood and their, you know, contrived uh, uh, polls and, you know, doing press conferences. And, you know, they, they spent, I, I think like, you know, a couple dozen million dollars recently in lobbying. I wish I had the number off the top of my head. In lobbying um, Washington lawmakers like Richie Torres, who so, represents so, the Bronx.
1: So, so in this context, uh, self determination would mean independence, or, or or what does this mean?
9: It means that the different parties come together and they create a process to determining what that is. They have a convention. They debate. They have rep- representatives from each, si- each side: the Commonwealth side, the Independence side, uh, this New Movement Party. Um, it's not. Tr- I don't know how to translate it in English, but the New Movement Party, I should say, uh, and and the Statehood Party and you know, they all have a seat at the table to discuss what are the pros and cons. Perfect example is in that press conference with Jennifer Gonzalez, a reporter asked, okay, if the U.S. becomes a state, would the debt be eliminated? And she goes, didn't even hesitate. No, not at all. So what is the point of becoming a state if you're not gonna?
2: Well, that's that's the, uh, the reason that so many politicians probably do support statehood. Um, I guess is kind of a point I wanted to make was because that means that they control the debt at that point. You know what I mean? Like, like the whole issue of representation. Like, it it sounds good when when politicians are like, oh, they can be represented, but they're represented. Um. Plus another 50 states. You know what I mean? So at, at that point, like, it's basically that the federal government has captured the debt to the point where they can now, like, Congress can vote together and then say, well, you had, like, you had your chance to to argue against the debt and we voted against it. And that's a fair process. And fuck Yeah, but I mean,
1: that's, that's, that's such a bizarre idea that you could have a state of the United States that owes a debt, you know, to... Uh, well, to- many
2: states do. Um, like many states owe, owe debts for various reasons that they've loaned money from the government, but Puerto Rico's is just so like, like the PROMESA act was so. Uh, but,
1: but, but given the size and given that it's something that originates when they're not a state, you know, like, like yeah. that seems like a very weird idea. Uh, so, I, I mean, I guess like the obvious re- like reason to support it would just be, um, okay, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have colonies. Uh, so, uh, so you, you, you shouldn't have something be a uh, a United, you know, be uh semi part of the United States, but, you know, without, you know, without voting, uh, voting representation. Uh, and so that means either, uh, you know, being an independent country uh, or, uh, or being a state. And, uh, and if, if the if statehood is what people want, then that's what should happen. But it sounded like earlier you were saying that uh, that if you take a closer look, it's not actually so clear that uh, that statehood is what most people in Puerto Rico. Want. Oh,
9: not at all, not at all. Um, with that being said, you know there's this assumption from mainland Democrats, uh, uppercase Democrats, uppercase D that oh well you know if 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 puerto rico is a state then we'll get two senators and maybe like four congress members and and we'll have like a major that's bs the you know if you look at the lastly le- the current resident commissioner who represents the entire island is a republican a a trump republican not a Mitt romney republican a trumpian republican uh pedro Luis the the, the guy who uh, uh who's the the governor now um well, he identifies as Democrat. He's a statehooder. So he's more conservative on the island. The past uh, governor, uh, Ricky Sayo, he, he was a statehooder, um, you know, and his father is 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 was the governor as well, partly responsible for for many of the financial um, issues that 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 the island has inha- is. Uh, inherited. Um, And then before that, you had, you know, a more traditional Democrat. And then before that, you had a Republican. uh, And then you had another Republican. So it's, it's for the most part, the island, I think, with exception, I mean, two or three, they've for the last, you know, 25 years, it's been Republicans. And so you're probably going to get a Republican as your senator. And some of that is not because the island is more conservative. It's because there's just been this uh, really toxic, predatory, political system, you know, it's, 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 there are a lot of states in this country. I think you look at Wisconsin. Would anybody say Wisconsin's really that conservative? Probably not. But gerrymandering, Koch brothers, you know, money flowing in, um, those are the conditions that create these dynamics. And, uh, what we saw in this last election was that the independence movement, which is more to the left, probably more socialist, um, did better than they've ever done since, uh, the FBI <laughs> basically tried to kill them all and imprison right, right. them and literally radiate them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how these movements take an effect. And, and just to put this in perspective, you know, DSA, uh, Center for Popular Democracy, uh, the Open Society Foundation, and many uh, Puerto Rican diaspora groups have supported uh, Velasquez and AOC's bill. You know, the more traditional left is aligned with that bill.
1: Yeah, so you, you said that the um, that this vote that they kept referring to in those clips uh, was uh, was two options. So it was uh it was statehood it was status quo, although I still didn't quite get how we were going from fifty two percent in that and change in that vote to the like ninety seven percent. I don't even yeah,
9: I looked at that, I still don't understand that either.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
9: Thank you. They, I was. The, I didn't
1: get it
2: either. The uh, the plebiscite, like the the vote that they had, the question was literally: Should Puerto Rico be um, immediately admitted into the union as a state? That was the that, that was, the was question. It. Yeah,
3: that was
1: it. And and that was like fifty two percent for, and you know whatever forty seven percent and change against. like, yeah. like, like I just want to make sure I was I was, I was reading that right because because I, I I don't understand where the Like, like I was really confused by the 97% figure earlier and then suddenly it's, you know, it's 52% Then suddenly it's 97%. I mean, that's a, that's a big gap. Well, she's the
2: Latinos for Trump lady. She makes up her own facts as she goes along. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like.
1: She might be pulling it from a previous vote, which was also
9: not recognized because of these uh, clever little. It reminds me a lot of actually Cuomo. Cuomo will like pull these numbers together, and you're like, "Wait, what is that actually based on?" And it's like, "Well, my controlled, uh, my controlled mechanism to to vote." I mean, it's it's, and again, it's not like Democrat versus Republican. You know, Commonwealthers have their own. I mean, and, and there's diversity within these parties. You know, within the yeah. parties
1: as well. So it's. Um, so 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 I, I do want to talk about uh Cuomo in a minute, but just uh you you, you said that uh like like because this this seems like on the face of it, this this is like a really weird thing. You said that uh that these are votes that are taking place in the United States territory that like aren't recognized by the UN and stuff like that. I mean that that's that's like that that's <laughs> like yeah. w- w- what's going on like with these votes well they're also not
9: recognized by the united states that's why they had to put it in this bill and and use it as like like their um you know their research it's like they they went to a uh, think tank you know a right leaning think tank and that was the stats that they brought to the table that they cite when they put forward their bill it's not you know it, it it's not like they're going to the us government and saying see this is our accurate it, it's a gimmick um
1: okay so so uh, I mean, just, just before we we move on like I mean I understand that the idea that uh, Puerto Rican statehood you know would would like work out well for for Democrats and badly for Republicans doesn't necessarily make sense given the realities you know on the ground uh, but as far as as what would be good for um, you know for people in Puerto Rico uh, that you um, you know, obviously not forgiving the debt is a huge problem, but like if, uh, but, uh, but you know, some of the points made at the end of that reel of clips, right. Do, do seem right. If you're being ultimately ruled over by an entity where you don't have voting registration, that's not going to go well for you. So, um, so I could still see somebody watching all of this and and thinking, okay, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. But like still, right. You know, state statehood, uh, you know, still statehood sounds better than not. You know, for for people in Puerto Rico. So, so why not? Or, or what do yeah. you think?
9: You know, that's that's a great point. There was a Supreme Court ruling. I I think in 1987. I, I know I'm going to get corrected on this. I apologize, uh, which basically eliminated the rights. So, for instance, social security benefits, great example. Um, before 1987, this had nothing to do with whether or not they were state or not. Puerto Ricans had the rights that you and I, all of us have together by living on the mainland. But a Mm -hmm. Supreme Court ruling, which was essentially pretty white supremacist, it was based on another ruling that was extremely white supremacist, eliminated the rights of Puerto Rican citizens, U.S. citizens, to have the same benefits that all of us have on the mainland. And that had nothing to do with statehood. That just had to do with a really messed up Supreme Court ruling. And so sometimes you hear statehooders say, well, then we'll get the same benefits and, you know, the Jones Act uh, could be eliminated. Sure. But that's not dependent on whether or not you're admitted as a state. That has to do with whether or not, you know, you can you can overrule this, the Supreme Court ruling, which, you know, there's a, there's a big movement to do so.
1: Fair enough. Um,
9: yeah.
1: All right. Um, <laughs> let's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, let's 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 move back to the mainland uh and uh and, and talk about Cuomo because uh because I know we have uh uh you know we have we have limited time and and I want to uh, I want to make sure that uh uh that we that we do that tonight. So do we do we have the uh the, the non-apology apology and uh, Te- and then
9: technically technically Puerto Rico is the sixth borough, so it's it's connected. <laughs> Fair enough.
6: I <laughs> want to address the recent allegations that have been made against me. Uh, As you probably know, the Attorney General is doing an independent review, and I will fully cooperate with that review. Now the lawyers say, I shouldn't say anything when you have a pending review until that review is over. I understand that, Uh, I'm a lawyer too. But I want New Yorkers to hear from me directly on this. First, I fully support a woman's right to come forward, and I think it should be encouraged in every way. I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable. It was unintentional and I truly and deeply apologize for it. I feel awful about it and frankly, I am embarrassed by it and that's not easy to say, but that's the truth. But this is what I want you to know. And I want you to know this from me directly. I never touched anyone inappropriately. I never touched anyone inappropriately. I never knew at the time that I was making anyone feel uncomfortable. I never knew at the time I was making anyone feel uncomfortable. And I certainly never, ever meant to offend anyone or hurt anyone or cause anyone any pain. That is the last thing I would ever want to do. I asked the people of this state to wait for the facts from the Attorney General's report before forming an opinion. Get the facts, please, before forming an opinion and the Attorney General is doing that review. I will fully cooperate with it and then you will have the facts and make a decision when you know the facts. I also want you to know that I have learned from what has been an incredibly uh, difficult situation for me as well as other people. And I've learned an important lesson. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for whatever pain I caused anyone. I never intended it. Uh, and I will be the better for this experience. There are facts, and then there are opinions. And I've always separated the two. When I do briefings, I put out the facts, and then I offer my opinions. But they are two different concepts. Politicians who don't know a single fact but yet form a conclusion and an opinion are, in my opinion, reckless and dangerous. The people of New York should not have confidence in a politician who takes a position without knowing any facts or substance. That, my friends, is politics at its worst. Politicians take positions for all sorts of reasons, including political expediency and bowing to pressure. But people know the difference between playing politics, bowing to counsel, cancel culture, and the truth. People know the difference between playing politics, bowing to cancel culture, and the truth.
1: Before we get Nobi's reaction, I, I just I just want you to officially confirm for us: you were not playing that on 0.5 speed. Like he like for, for some reason when he talks about this, he just slows it down to that point.
2: I also promise you, I didn't uh, cut the things twice. Like he he said all of those things twice.
9: That's very Cuomo. Very Cuomo.
2: And he slows it down further the second time.
1: It's like the uh, the guy in uh, the uh, scene in Goodfellas where they give everybody's nicknames, you know, whatever it is, Joey Two Times.
9: Yeah. Hey, stop with the Italian references! Don't you all these these attacks, all these attacks? It's because there's an anti-Italian. Oh my God, that's literally what came out today. Was that you're 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 discriminating against Italian? sons of governors who control the state budgets for a decade and who have brothers on cnn and whose ex-wife was a kennedy and may i go on
1: no yeah i mean he's clearly a very gracious. powerless and vulnerable person very rights uh,
2: I- rights are human rights you got the right <laughs> to just grab people and kiss them on both cheeks and i don't know it's just
1: no that's no Yeah. yeah right. I mean,
9: that's listen so i'm funny. a greek I feel like by well, actually, twenty-three. Me, I'm twenty-three percent Italian, so um, I have the right uh, to say this. Okay, they wow, occupied our islands. I can speak
1: on their behalf.
2: Hey, I'm fifty. I'm fifty percent is- Italian, and you're not living up to my lived experience here as an Italian man living in New York. Um,
1: no, I mean, I I assume that that's that's just. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, COVID <laughs> must have been rough for you, for us, you know, because because like you know, <laughs> you much like I can't can you celebrate this Day. Speaking?
9: <laughs> they're going after columbus now what's next what's next
2: worst episode of the sopranos i can't even watch that one yeah, but
1: um, uh, <laughs> yeah, some great moments i like i like christopher being confused about uh where he, whether gary cooper was gay at the end but uh, i
2: use the i use the it's italian discrimination um react like react screenshot all the time on everything <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I, I, so I like the fact that Cuomo and his defenders are playing both sides of the street at this point and and you know whatever I mean obviously
3: it's uh
1: as 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 gross as everything that you know all this is about is it's not exactly the worst thing he's done right I mean he did also kill a whole uh-huh. bunch of people in nursing homes that's not worth those are you know. facts
9: those are well technically he didn't ki- let's be clear like I'm yeah, gonna yeah, be yeah. the yeah. journalist hat for a second i don't give i don't throw him a bone that often but he didn't kill. The people sure. in the nursing homes. Sure. He covered up the numbers in which pretty much it was happening everywhere, like whether you could change it or not. I mean, maybe he did because he moved them from hospitals to these nursing homes. I mean, yeah, so there there is a case to be made there, but you know.
2: Well, now I. he's gonna kill everyone in nursing homes.
1: Yeah, at the, uh, at the very <laughs> at the very least, to have one last Sopranos reference. You know, it's the uh, thing he was uh when um uh carmela uh asks uh what happened to uh to richie april and said, and tony says you know after this many years of marriage don't make me make me make you an accessory after the fact uh <laughs> so, you know like you, you know at the very least is an accessory after the fact i thought uh, you were gonna
2: say it's a retirement community
3: <laughs> and not included <laughs> in the nursing home numbers
1: Exactly.
9: i am so happy i rewatched the sopranos from start to finish in like march of last year so i'm getting all these references
1: <laughs> um, i also
2: i have the cuomo uh died in a nursing home died in a uh a, a hospital who cares clip that we played when emma was on but um
9: oh my god yeah that it's one? Ruthless. i no, i didn't i there were you know there was a time in my life, if I can be clear, I was obsessed with Cuomo. I read yeah. every book on him, pretty much every article. Uh, it was he's he's a fascinating study in, in I mean, I actually think he's an extreme, extremely skilled politician. His well, you Achilles know, heel a, is he hates people. A year ago,
2: New York women are coronavirus crushing on Andrew
1: Cuomo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He is
9: single, guys. Just want you to know.
1: <laughs> <Well, my laughs> that like, wasn't clear at all this. <laughs>
9: <laughs> what I don't understand is why couldn't he call called one of these women who was like, like hiring publicists to have like profiles of them in the New York Post, like, you know, Long Island. Like, like and literally, he could have just called one of those women up and he had to go to the staffers, which, you know, remember, he was an attorney general and he investigated these things, as he said.
2: Well, because I mean, with Cuomo, I feel like it's all about power. It's all about like what can he do? Like what can he do with that power? And yes. it's never anything to benefit people, like besides the people around him and himself. So, like, it makes perfect sense that like Cuomo would have just grabbed somebody and and kissed them that was like under him on the, yeah. I guess, the, the hierarchical structure of yeah. politics.
1: So, so, so to defend this, he's he's trying both things impressively. So on the one hand, he's having you know he's having people run this. Uh, anti-italian discrimination like uh i saw somebody today actually compared it to ebbett till uh, I
9: that. oh my god what on earth
1: yeah uh so so I uh, uh, so he's 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 running the uh the woke defense but he also says in that last clip uh that it's um that this is uh cancel culture, cancel culture. which is uh which which is is awesome because i, I think this is like a a general like that, you know, that even Cuomo has, has latched onto this because, cause like, this is, this is something that's like struck me lately as a little weird, you know, that it's like as, as recently as last summer when there was all the endless discourse about the Harper's letter, like it seemed like 95% of the time when people use the phrase cancel culture, I knew what they were talking about. They were talking right. about like online pylons and, you know, getting people fired and stuff like that. And now it really feels like in the last couple months, uh, it's it's been brought into the point where people are using it to talk about like Dr. Seuss and shit like that. And like, I just have no idea what they mean anymore. Uh, I, and- wish, I wish
2: you had saved that for the transition to the other clip where-
9: I oh. <laughs> have to debate Dr. Seuss again. I've done it like six times last week. <laughs> Every time on cable news, they call you like, and by the way, we're talking about Dr. Seuss.
1: I'm like, oh my <laughs> God. Yeah. I'll awesome. be sitting on my
9: deathbed looking back and saying, Could I have saved, you know, what, what could I have done with those five hours of my life
1: instead of talking about You docket. killed all
2: the Who's down I in who's Whoville. All the ones that. on that on that flower that was
1: <laughs> Yeah, right. Like it's it's um yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> so uh you you are most definitely not going to be asked uh to uh uh, to uh, to debate the actual uh, Doctor Seuss issue because uh, I, I I think that um, you know I, I think the official GTA position is there's something there's something. You know, I'm in I'm no shade on you. I mean, it's what they asked you to come on to talk about. But, like, I think the official show position is there's something deeply wrong with anybody who spent more than 90 seconds thinking about Dr. You know, the, uh, yeah. the Dr. Seuss thing. I'll, um, I'll, I'll,
2: I'll co-sign that position. I'll
9: co-sign <laughs> it, and I did. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the best uh, part is what I went on, on, on uh, air to talk about it last week. I, I don't know. I came up with some spin about it. I can't, like, you guys are f- too focused on cancel culture when you're not focused on, you know, you, you, you whatever. your de- definitions of cancel culture are all over the place. And then the Republican was like, actually, I want to talk about education. Uh, can we talk about how public school, why are we talking about why schools aren't being funded right now? I'm like, what? What is going on
1: here? I was yeah, like, yes, was let's so talk about bad. it. let basically yeah, let's took talk over. About that, Jesus. Uh, so it's, it's not the actual issue, but I do want you to play that clip for us. Oh, right now? Yeah. Sure. Did Cuomo so, decide
9: to change the subject on, <laughs> talk about Dr. Seuss?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you know, Cuomo, uh, I, I think that, um, yeah. I mean, if, if there's some, again, like, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that this means that Cuomo is on his way out because it seems like he's he's reached the point where he's throwing everything against the wall that he can possibly think of, right. you know, it's, it's cancel culture. It's, it's uh, anti-Italian lynching, uh, you know, whatever, whatever he can think of. And, uh, and, you know, whatever. I mean, I'll even say uh, the cancel culture thing, like I find this frustrating because as someone who actually does think that online pylons and, you know, and sort of hair trigger firings and stuff are a real problem that the left should take mm-hmm. seriously, like, you know, using this thing that was, that like as a label for that to talk about like every single petty culture war complaint that has absolutely nothing to do with that seems super unhelpful. Um, uh, but yeah, you were safe.
9: And, and, and just one little note that um, is important to keep in mind here, in two weeks, the the budget's due from, from him. Right. And so uh, there's a lot of like, like, in New York, this is when everyone's like, well, what's going on in New York? I'm like, well, there's what's going on, and then there's what's going on. So what's what's the subtext here? And the subtext here is, uh, you know, they're about to go into budget negotiations. He's probably trying to leverage that. I mean, if he does have to step down, which, you know, in my mind, it was like if Biden says to step down, he's going to have to step down. I and mean, that would happen behind closed doors, probably. But uh, But Biden has said, like, let the investigation play out which signals that that's not going to happen anytime soon and Hillary probably won't step up. And those are the only two people I can think that, that could publicly push him in that direction. But if there were a situation in which he did have to step down, I mean, the state would be in utter chaos uh, with a budget that is looming and it's always a toxic time in Albany. Um, you have the IDC, which is out. Now you have an actual Democratic Senate that is you know, just angry at him. He has no friends no, no political friends like at all. Uh, I wasn't surprised Gillibrand came out against him. I'll we'll just leave it there. Um, so it's it's it would with the budget crisis that we're dealing with in New York, with economic crisis, with Gu- Cuomo out. I actually I I don't know. I mean, maybe the delaying the process, which might inevitably still inevitably still lead to him stepping down, might be smarter. And I can't believe I'm saying that because he's a pain in the ass to deal with when it comes to the budget. But like the alternative is. Kathy Hochul inherits a seat and suddenly has to maneuver this in in a matter of weeks. I I mean, I don't have an opinion on either one, also, but, you know, we I do have to think about this.
2: I have a I have kind of a not not a theory, but like there's kind of a, a thing about um, Cuomo being used almost as like a, a sacrificial lamb to the um, to the Democrats coronavirus response. Because, you know, it came out that uh, Gretchen Whitmer or whatever, they're doing a, a similar um, like a inquiry into her handling of nursing home deaths. And it seems like a lot of the heroes that, that, that the Democrats have kind of constructed around this coronavirus response um, in terms of governors are starting to fall. So it seems like if if Democrats kind of wanted to flee from Cuomo, um, like the harassment allegations would be a perfect time to do it instead of like a further investigation into the way that nursing home deaths were handled. I mean, it kind of, that's like the, because it seems like they jumped ship so fast. You know what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and part of that is obviously that you know they they no longer if they support cuomo might not have like the moral high ground in their minds like when it comes to harassment allegations but the other thing is that you know it, it works better for them i feel like to have cuomo go down for this and not for like nursing home deaths and like not have the media examine their own role in propping him up for the last year not have like all of these things would kind of completely uh demolish the the line about like the democrats being the more responsible party on coronavirus
9: right and and yeah. you know the referendum on Gavin Newsom too, I mean uh right. Warren and Sanders came out and said that they didn't support the referendum, so it's it's interesting,
1: yeah, yeah, no that's that's a little um you know i I, I love uh um you know, I love Bernie and there's a there's often, there's a conversation to be had about how much of this even you know tactically makes sense or not. I'll certainly say for my own satisfaction. Uh, you know, I, I wish you, you were much less of a team player about stuff like this. But, um, uh, but uh, of course, um, obviously, we want to uh, spend uh, the next three hours talking about Dr. Seuss. So, for us, let's roll that clip.
6: <laughs> Mr. Ryan.
11: Sent, Mr. Speaker, to okay, uh, enter a letter into the record from the Machinist Union. Without objection, and now the gentleman is recognized for one minute. Mr. Speaker, one of the earlier speakers said... This is the most dramatic change in labor law in 80 years. And I say, thank God. In the late 70s, a CEO made 35 times the worker. Today, it's three to 400 times the worker. And our friends on the other side, running around with their hair on fire. Heaven forbid we pass something that's gonna help the damn workers in the United States of America. Heaven forbid. We tilt the balance that has been going in the wrong direction for 50 years. We talk about pensions, you complain. We talk about the minimum wage increase, you complain. We talk about giving them the right to organize, you complain. But if we're passing a tax cut here, you'd be all getting in line to vote yes for it. Now stop talking about Dr. Seuss (laughs) and start working with us on behalf of the American workers. I yield back the balance of my time. The
1: gentleman yields back. uh, credit where credits do. It's a good line. So uh, let's Second. talk about the pro act.
9: <laughs> I, I don't know how often I've I've cheered on Tim
1: Ryan, but I know, you know right? <laughs> right? You know, but going you know, balls and strikes here, and, and that well, was he's good. a
2: he's a union. I mean, like he has a lot of flaws. He's kind of a, an establishment Democrat, but he has lined up in support of labor stuff because unions kind of take up a, a large percentage of his uh, constituency. So he's, he's an interesting figure because when it comes to stuff like Medica for All, he's never going to support that. But when it comes to something like the PRO Act, like since unions are such a big part of his base, he kind of, he has to.
9: Right. Exactly. I actually, I I've, strangely enough, five or six years ago, I went to a, a fundraiser um, in the Greek community and they were supporting him. And, I'm, and I mentioned i him Greek. And uh, the people who were there s- hosting the fundraiser were, uh, they worked with, they were like They did something with like um construction, but they only work with union contracts, and that's why they supported him. And that's how I learned all about his union background, because I never thought that. Then he challenged Nancy Pelosi, and you know, he's clearly hungry and he's running for Senate. So
1: (laughs) um
9: but the Pro Act, yeah.
1: Yeah, so so why is this uh uh, okay, actually actually, so there are really two questions here, right? So so one is is there actually any chance of uh, of this passing the Senate? And the second is, why would it be so important if it did?
9: Um, I mean, I think it's on us to to make sure that it passes in the Senate. And I think there's, I mean, we control the Senate now, so uh, if the pressure can be put on on Joe Manchin and and I mean, especially Joe Manchin because of the labor force in his state and people like Kirsten Cinema who lives in a right to work state. Um, and this would reverse right-to-work states, I mean, the the, the ability for a state to, to be right-to-work, um, that's transformative in itself. And she, I mean, she absolutely must know what uh, is, is, is acutely aware of how labor, which is very loosely organized in Arizona, um, has been able to organize around issues related to education. I mean, they just passed a tax-the-rich bill to fund education. This last cycle was huge. Or not bill, um... It was a, uh, it was, it was, it was on the ballot. It was a ballot measure. So, I mean, I think it's very doable. Um, I think the coalitions behind. It, I work with an organization called Matriarch, and we're big supporters of of uh, the Pro Act specifically because we're we're backing working class women, uh, many of whom have a labor background, aligned with unions, coming from unions because we think that's the pathway to uh, winning. You know, across the country and making sure that if somebody runs as a progressive, they stay as a progressive. That's kind of how it works. If you're part of a union, you're most likely going to stand for those issues. So we're very excited about the bill. I know there are a lot of different organizations out there putting a lot of pressure. Um, I think there's a real chance. I think, you know, it's, it's stalled in the Senate for a while. Uh, but, you know, we the moment is different. The makeup is different. Um the hunger is different. And just frankly, like the country is going to be in a very rough situation if we do not have a strength in labor. And this is a, an incredibly strong bill. Um, it reverses labor laws of the last, you know, anti labor laws of the last, you know, 40, 50 years. So I think it's the strongest since Taft Hartley, if I'm correct. But um, yeah, it would be transformative. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, well, yeah, I, I want to, because uh, cause I think that. I think that some people might, you know, sort of vaguely get, okay, this is a good thing; it's a pro-union thing, but they, they might not get quite why this would be such, a, you know, quite such a big deal if it happens. So, like, what, what are the kinds of things that this is rolling back?
9: Um, so, people who are striking, employees that are striking, can no longer be replaced in the midst of a strike. Um, I mentioned that the end there, there would be an end of right to work. Uh, states couldn't be right to work anymore. Um, let me think what else secondary strikes would be legal again. Uh let me see. Oh uh you could extend the, the when they're when a when like Amazon for instance um you could have shorter voting processes where right now Amazon's voting process is like a year no it's like a month long um and they're spending a ton of money and and using all these tricks to pressure uh workers not to to vote in favor of of unionizing in Alabama. Um, I believe that the federal arbiters are able to impose the um, the terms of a labor contract, which was not <laughs> a thing before. Uh, let me see. What am I forgetting here? Did I forget the, anything the else? Amazon, guys?
2: The Amazon thing is is um pretty interesting because as we see this uh as we see like jeff bezos having resigned from amazon i like i i feel like a big part of the reason why he resigned is so that the washington post can start writing articles um <laughs> kind of like no because they, they released an article that's supposedly fair and balanced about where they just admitted that amazon sees unionization as a threat to its ability um like they they hold on somewhere in this article they say that um yeah, it seeds the seeds of unionization um, could blossom into organizing drives at other facilities and uh, force Amazon to adopt workplace rules that finds restrictive. And they they yeah. talked like a like a former like a an off the record quote unquote um, executive that's like, oh well, you know things are pretty good for workers here, and we we really like we'd really prefer they not unionize, and and we think a unionization drive across our company would not be a, a good thing for us. And and like, but it seems like Jeff Bezos kind of resigns and then just as this vote happens and then all of a sudden like established media is willing to just kind of write it off. they like, well, you know, Washington Post is owned by him, but he's no longer in charge of Amazon. And like, they put a disclaimer that he's like, you know, he runs that newspaper. So it's like,
1: yeah, every I mean, school, little, like yeah. honestly, I think Jeff Bezos is no longer in charge of Amazon in about the same sense that, uh, halfway through casino a Rustin was you know was no longer in charge oh he's still <laughs> their
2: biggest shareholder like
1: <laughs> right. you know he you know you change your job title every now and again yeah but, uh, yeah
2: he's he's uh, their biggest uh, shareholder. but so so like i'm just saying like the the depths of how a company like amazon can fight against unionization like you know what i mean like they they control the press at that point like they control um they control what like what their workers do literally to the point as we were talking about earlier What they're controlling their workers movements like you know, that, that level of control has to be seated at some point, or, you know, the balance is so far gone that, like, you know what I mean? Like, the labor movement can't spring back up, and I feel like this, the PRO Act is, like, is is a great stopping point for that to get yeah, some power back. I mean,
1: there, is, there is the worry that Sean Richmond brought up when uh, when he was on the show that it uh, wouldn't survive a uh, Supreme Court challenge, you know, certainly not with, um, you know, with this Supreme right. Court. Yeah.
9: But by the time it gets to that point, um, you know how many things could could be, how how much could happen. I mean, I I'm not one to say I'm not a labor lawyer. So. No,
1: but I mean, but it's but but that is. I mean, that it like yeah. I mean, that's 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 definitely got to be the hope, right? That like if if there's some uh, good organizing that happens, you know, in between now and then, that could start to change the dynamic, even if the Supreme Court then takes it all away again. Uh, really hope so. Uh, thank you so Don't much. Worry, Marco
9: Rubio will get us there because he's in favor of Amazon <laughs> workers now. So yeah, just make yeah. him the spokesperson.
2: I'm tired <laughs> of all these woke, these woke bosses coming in here telling workers, you know, you, you can't buy books that are anti-trans anymore. Just, you know what? I, I'm I'm in support of
1: all unions now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
9: Amazon weird. bandit. Screw that guy.
1: <laughs> yeah. We were talking about the uh, DeMarco Rubio uh, op-ed earlier, which, um, Really, like, like I know, like, like really, like they seemed less like he was uh, supporting uh, the uh, the union than like he was going to send the, uh, send a message uh, to uh, to other companies. Like, you know, this is hey, uh, if if you piss me off on, on culture war issues and donate to Democrats, uh, then then I'm you know I'm not going to defend you like I normally would when an insanely profitable uh, corporation is facing a unionization effort. But <laughs> it no, it's 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 it, it is uh it is awesome. I mean like I, I think that if you if you buy little Marco as an economic populist, I think you'd buy anything. <laughs> but uh thank you, uh thank you so much, uh Nobiki. Where can people find you?
9: Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Forrest. Um, you can check me out at uh, the Nomi Show. It's on YouTube, N-O-M- The N-O-M-I-K-I-K-O-N-S-T. Uh, no, wait. <laughs> God, everyone did the oh, Nomi well. Show. Just the Nomi Show. Uh, it's on YouTube, it's on Twitch, and you're also you can also find me on Patreon. That's how we pay our bills. So definitely join us on Patreon if you can. We have a book club that we launched in January, and we're in the middle of Capital is Dead is is this something worse? Uh it's a great book. Our uh, podcast with Mackenzie Work will be up, I believe, this week. So you can go check that out on Patreon as well. And I'm also on the Majority Report on Tuesdays tomorrow. That's tomorrow. Uh, And if you want to support Matriarch, which I mentioned before, go check out matriarchpack.com. Matriarch is doing a bunch of trainings this cycle to support working class women, especially with a labor background. Run for Congress next cycle. So we get a bunch of... uh, Of Corey Bush is in, who was one of our founding members. So go check them out as well. I think that's all of my things, at least at the top of my head.
1: (laughs) All right. Sounds good. (laughs) Thanks, Jamaica. Thank you. All right, Uh, we are going to take an intermission for like 45 seconds, and then we are going to be back uh, with uh, two uh, excellent uh, Radical Teachers Union uh, activists, uh, Paul Prescott and uh, Kenzo Shibata. So, uh, really excited for that conversation in just a minute. joined by uh paul prescott and kenzo shibata how are you guys doing you're all right
14: good glad Got to be here
10: yeah so uh i'm a little tired but extremely happy
1: yeah and uh and and tired of forest surely at this point you know this is uh, lately <laughs> we're <laughs> common law now <laughs>
3: <laughs> we, had
2: a, we, had really fun, we
10: had
2: a really fun show on uh meet the left yesterday we talked about like a whole bunch of stuff and I don't know. It was an all producer show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. So yeah. Why don't you, uh, Kenzo uh, people who might not be uh, familiar with, uh, with who you are and what you do. You want to introduce yourself?
10: I'm uh well, primarily um, I'm a high school teacher. I teach civics and English in the Chicago public schools. And, uh, at night, uh, I do a show called uh, The Kenzo Shibata Show. It's it's a podcast over at patreon.com slash my name. And then also every Sunday we do Meet the Left, uh, which is a panel show. Three leftists, uh, Forrest and, and Paul have been on it. Uh, Ben's going to be on it in a couple of weeks. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and it's it's kind of like a, you know a Sunday morning talk show, except we do it at night and everyone's a socialist, at least. Fair enough.
1: Other than that, exactly the same. Uh, How about you, Paul? (laughs) Uh,
14: So similar to Kenzo, yeah, my day job is a public school teacher. I teach uh, social studies, ninth and 10th grade in the Philadelphia School District. Uh, Proud member of my union, Philadelphia Federation of Teachers. Um, And I co-host the Jackman Show, which airs on YouTube on Wednesdays. And I edit the clips (laughs) for. Right. There you go. very <laughs> yeah. incestuous but uh you know whatever
1: yeah it's it's one of the 20 shows that forrest has produced for. right uh, <laughs> yeah fair enough uh well uh do we have the uh the ventilation clip
2: yeah Hold so Th- this was this was wild when um when paul played it on uh, uh i was wondering uh, if
14: you, this is the one yeah
2: yeah
7: The Philadelphia School District is installing window ventilation fans in school buildings as part of their COVID safety plan. The district released this video today. Students will begin to return to in-person learning on February 22nd. Now, some parents and teachers have complained about this ventilation strategy, arguing it is insufficient.
14: (laughs) To say the least.
1: Arguing, <laughs> even have yeah, them. right. I, I, I mean, they cracked a window, so I mean, like, right. I, I, don't know, I don't know what else more you want from them.
14: Yeah, the air moves around, and then the corona, right. you know, he's got to blow he, the COVID up anywhere. Right. <laughs> what's amazing is that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would show that, or I, I think I put it on Facebook, and people that you know are not in the school district, of Philadelphia, I don't know what's going on. We're like, that's a meme, right? Like, I posted mm-hmm. a picture. I'm like, there's no way that's a real thing. And this was their third time attempting to uh, send us back to in person. So we were thinking, you know, surely this time around they would have like a really fleshed out plan that we cannot poke any holes in. Um, I mean, (laughs) their
1: plan was literally they're going to crack a window. (laughs) (laughs)
14: Right, Right. Right. So, yeah, well, isn't
1: it, isn't it
2: the wire or something that um, when uh, when that one detective becomes a, a school teacher in Baltimore, they say, <laughs> listen, like, make sure the windows are closed. So the students get tired and therefore, you know, you can. Right. Oh, right. So maybe cracking maybe, you know, cracking a window is a special uh, a special <laughs> occasion in a in a city. School. <laughs> well, right. The
10: problem is like the CDC put out guidelines and then our city also put out guidelines and have had our buildings not been 100 to 200 years old in Chicago, maybe they would work. But like when the rubber hit the road, like our windows don't stay open in a lot of schools. And we're not given like dowels or anything to hold them open. Um, so sometimes you prop them open with like textbooks from the 1970s. I'm not kidding. We've done that before. And then, you know, we are in this period in Chicago right now where like today we had a blizzard. The weekend, it was like the spring, it was 60 degrees. So like sometimes those windows are frozen shut and other days, you know, you can open them. Sometimes they're raining right in. Like Hmm. they didn't assess the actual like conditions on the ground before they issued these reports.
14: Right. And I think a lot of people and people just don't understand that, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for Kenzo, but I don't think any teacher is going to sit here and claim virtual learning is as good as in person. So and we want to go back as well, but people don't realize they don't understand the magnitude of the conditions that have been deteriorating after decades of austerity, you know, if they're not kind of living in in those areas.
1: No, I mean, look, uh, clearly nobody's going to make that claim. Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I teach college students who, you know, who are, you know, adults who are there of their own free will and, uh, and virtual learning isn't uh, isn't right. like, like the same as being in a classroom. I can just imagine, you know, uh, the uh, the K twelve versions. Uh, but uh, this is also like, uh, I mean, one, you know, you could, you really do have to ask uh, how well uh, how well people learn if uh, if they're rationally worried about getting the plague. Uh, and, uh, and, and two, I mean, there are, you know, there are competing priorities here, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, you know, you know, to put it mildly. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is such like a weird, like insult to everybody's intelligence. It's like, oh, right. well, you have a window. What well, do you want? The window. It's, <laughs> mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's <laughs> that takes care of it. I remember actually Kenzo seeing the, uh, the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union Twitter account, you know, posted uh, a little while ago, uh, a, uh, a picture about how the the district was saying you know it's okay you know just, just just open a window so there's some ventilation it'll be fine and you could see that literally the window was snowed shut mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> at, uh, at that point you know so uh, so so that's obviously uh, obviously pretty extreme but it, it also seems like if they're suggesting stuff like this um, like if they think that they can get away with that as as the entire response, Uh, then they're not very worried right now about being able to force teachers back to the classroom.
14: Yeah, and and I think, you know, I don't actually have a national lay of the land, but I'm just imagining there's probably many places without unions that are as strong that have been forced back. You know, imagine how many places have been. Um, You know, I feel pretty fortunate in my union. I mean, I'll admit it is not as strong as CTU in many ways, Um, but we were at least able to stop like some of the worst of this But I imagine in many places they haven't been able to.
10: One place that I thought was really interesting was Cicero, which is a western suburb, um, not a wealthy one either, pretty working class um, area. And their union, they basically like um, copied the campaign that CTU is doing to stay distance. Uh, The big difference, though, is that they have an elected school board. So like if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, you know, you go grocery shopping at the same grocery stores that – the people on your school board, mm-hmm. you can pressure them. And you can say like, Hey, this is, I'm not going to make your life easy. If like, you know, you do something I don't like. And so the difference in just the power dynamic, then Chicago, they were actually able to win and they're continuing to do distance learning. In fact, that went to court for them. And the judge determined that um, they, they, the judge would not issue an injunction because what they were doing was not a job action because they were still insisting upon teaching just via distance. So it's just interesting how, like, you know, you leave uh, Chicago, which has a completely different set of um, education policies, and, like, the same kind of campaign can be more effective. Yeah, right? um, I wanted to ask about that
2: because you sent me that article that you – like, the interview that they did with you at one point um, where you were talking about, um, I guess, the the, the school board – or the the lack of a school board in Chicago because um, the mayor's office was given pretty much the, the ability to um, – like, elect their, or not elect, like, put it, like, place in their own CEO, who mm-hmm. basically just answers to, in this case, Lori Lightfoot. And um, I was wondering if you could break that down, kind of, like, how that came to pass, and um, I guess under which mayor, and how it's caused problems for um, for teachers unions.
10: So this is such an interesting history, because if you ever want to, like, look at how Democrats and Republicans have worked together to gut the private sector, or the public sector, this is it. In '95, uh, uh, this was right at the heels of the big Republican takeover of uh, national politics—the Contract with America, Newt Gingrich, and all that. Um, that also impacted uh, state legislatures. So for the first time in a long time, Chicago had a Republican state legislature, and they also had a new mayor in Daley Jr., who uh, took over um, after Harold Washington, who was a populist, uh, you know, grassroots organized. Uh, campaign. Um, And then the the neoliberal reaction to that was Mayor Daley Jr. winning. And he had a very close relationship with uh, Republicans in the state because they all had very similar goals. Um, You know, Mayor Daley Jr. being a neoliberal, he was part of the civic uh, associations like the business community shaping policy locally. So he rubbed shoulders with Republicans just as much as he did uh, Democrats. And he was able to convince them in 95 to give him total control of the schools so he got to appoint the entire school board meaning we don't have a school board the mayor of chicago uh pulls the levers on the decisions they make and it also in the same year they were able to gut our uh, bargaining rights in specifically just in chicago where we can only strike or we we can only strike over wages and benefits so what that does is it makes it hard for us to, like, go on strike for class sizes, which is something the public would always support us on. And, you know, it was very uh, intentional to make us look very greedy mm-hmm. um, over the years, every time we tried to fight for more. And the, and the
2: head of the school board um, that he appoints is literally, I think, in, in what I was reading, called the CEO, right? Like, yes, and that's as if it's a corporation
10: part of that is you know branding and everything but what that meant was a superintendent has to have a, a state license to be a superintendent the ceo does not so they changed the law specifically to appoint this guy paul vallis who's they've sent him all around connecticut um all around the country to privatize shit so i think he was in philly for a while right paul
14: yeah i think with the the school reform commission which was our state takeover of our school board um Which we did get rid of recently, but it's mayoral appointed still.
10: So, yeah, Paul Vallis and then Arnie Duncan, who is, you know, um, the neoliberal beast um, who was able to force a bunch of uh, education reform, you know, corporate reforms down people's throats with this race to the top initiative, which was kind of an overreach of the federal government um, under Obama. Um, And, you know, all of these things are connected, you know, Obama and Duncan going to the White House from Chicago, where they made their bones with people like David Axel. Yeah, right?
1: I mean, I, mean, think, I think a like lot of people, uh, I think a lot of people don't really have a sense of how hostile the Obama administration mm-hmm. was to teachers' unions. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so
10: like that led to pretty much every problem we've had uh, in Chicago, every strike we've had in the past, uh, you know, 10 years is the fact that our school board is not accountable to anyone but the mayor. And mm-hmm we have a fucked up electoral system here. So the mayor isn't necessarily someone who has the will of the people, but, uh, has all the power and authority.
2: And then, um, skip ahead, I guess to, to Lori Lightfoot, who's like kind of one of the first, um, people that doesn't come out of that political machine. Like even Rahm Emanuel obviously like has the connections to Obama and, and, and the daily family. So, um, you know, just, just the fact that her CEO is going to be different than a daily family CEO, Mm -hmm. but it still is the same goal. I think, um, is what you were kind of trying to say. Yeah,
10: and the interesting thing about, so we've been complaining for years. I mean, we want to have an elected school board to make the choice of who the super should be, but um, part of what our messaging was, which may have been a mistake, was that we want an educator at the board. Well, we got one, but it's you know a member of the professional managerial class, Janice Jackson, who is not there supporting Teachers and not there advocating for us. She, you know, you would think it would be great to have a classroom teacher at the head at the helm saying, like, oh, and when I was in the classroom, X, Y, and Z things were problems. She was very resistant to any common sense reform we had at the bargaining table a year and a half ago, too. It was like negotiating with someone who was not even a teacher or never had that experience. So, you know, we we have an educator at the helm, but she's not a popularly uh elected or supported one so she has you know carte blanche to make all sorts of awful decisions on behalf of the mayor
14: mm-hmm. and the the amazing quote from the interview of lightfoot in the new york times where she's like i mean what's wrong with these teachers it's like they want to uh they want to well, run the school district actually i want to they want to run the city they want political influence what what is yeah, wrong with that? The, like, uh, uh, that yeah <laughs> right um she said um
2: let me put it in context of labor across the city. We have relationships with 40 organized labor unions. She goes, like, she know, she does that. And then she goes, um, they ask, what do you think her, what do you think their motivations are? She goes, I'm not going to speculate about what their motivations mm-hmm. are, but I don't believe that's correct. I mean, if you look at their spending, there's a real clear ind- indication of what their larger ambitions are. And then she says, ultimately, they'd like to take over not only Chicago public schools, but take over running the city government. That'll play itself out over time. I don't really spend time and certainly not in the middle of a pandemic worrying about the politics. Politics intrudes always.
14: I I love this. First of all, I love when politicians try to be like I I'm I don't do politics. Yeah, (laughs) I know I'm the elected mayor of a major U.S. city, but like I don't understand why politics is involved with what I do. Yeah, well, Um, we were just talking about that
2: with Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo, going you know, going like you know, playing politics is the big
14: problem with uh, everybody coming out against the sexual harassment (laughs) allegation. But yeah, Lightfoot, I mean, it's just like I mean, what are these peasants thinking that they can influence politics? You know,
10: anything bad is politics. Anything good yeah. is their, you know, genius.
1: Yeah, and they have, and and also, of course, um, the thing that jumped out at me about that was the you know the labor piece, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have labor peace. You know, with with all the rest of these, you know, it's it's just not these damn you know teachers. So, uh, which Sorry. which really which really ties into the politics thing because it's. Like both of those are different ways of saying that uh, people won't just shut up and do what they're told.
14: Right. And also, I mean, the attempt, as you see there, it's like, you know, the police union and the firefighters union, they cooperate. Um, But the other public sectors don't. And, you know, Scott Walker actually did a very similar thing when he Mm -hmm. attacked the public sector unions in Wisconsin back in 2011. Um, He actually was pretty smart about playing off. Certain unions were the good ones, you know, and he wouldn't, he wasn't going to attack the firefighters and some others, but he attacked the others um, with classic divide and conquer.
10: The way I could describe Lori Lightfoot's relationship to the Fraternal Order of Police is similar to Barack Obama's relationship with Netanyahu, where like <laughs> she gives the police everything. She gave them a fat budget, she gave them a bunch of our CARES Act money, she gave us school budget money in the form of school resource officers. And yet they hate her guts and they talk so much crap about her and they have their own police blogs where they call her Groot and just like dress her down. And yet she like cannot, uh, she just cannot help them out enough. And like, and they know, like they don't have to be nice to her because the meaner they are to her, the more she'll get. Mm. And it's Mm -hmm. a relationship she'll never win. And, you know, the teachers here were, you know, Kind of like the Palestinians, I guess.
2: Well, we were we were talking yesterday on Meet the Left about um. I asked you about her as a police accountability person in the in the mm-hmm. Rama manual um, I, like her role as that um because you know after the Laquan the McDonald or that that murder happened um on the street she kind of was the person they put in charge of the police accountability hearings, right?
3: Hmm.
10: Yeah, it was you know one of those you know it's it's like we talk about. How like the PMC, like they're there to advocate for the people. They're there to advocate for the bosses or whoever's in power. And that accountability board was, you know, on paper was there for the people to have some sort of say in the, you know, what in policing. And really it was her being a mouthpiece for the police, telling the public why the police are okay. And why, you know, certain things that they did were defensible. Um, And like, you know, that, that should have been
1: enough for us not to elect her. Yeah, so uh, so so I want to uh, get uh, get back to uh, to this the school issue. I mean, we we kind of heard like a little bit about where things stand in uh, in Chicago. Uh, so so Paul, I mean, like like what's what's the like what's the state of this right now in Philadelphia?
14: Yeah, I mean, so back on you know we were slated to return February eighth, and our union we had a big day of action that day. Oh, well, K-2 to teachers were slated to return, and we had a, a big day of action. Um, and, you know, sometimes the classic quote, the best organizer is a bad boss. And if there's anything good that came out of it, you know, that day of action was, you know, the most solidarity we've seen in the union in a while. And, you know, many people were participating in their first picket line, their first union action. Um, so we were able to stave off reopening then. They have since, you know, basically they've determine certain buildings are cleared for opening like they've done ventilation tests and are claiming they're okay and and those schools have to be approved by our union's environmental uh scientists um so you know i mean some people are it's not perfect that some are starting to go back so k-2 to schools a lot of them are opening now and again it's only for students that have signed up and many haven't i mean that's the other part of this uh many are still choosing not to and also some people are not realizing quite what this means with a hybrid plan. Like, you know, students are going to be in a classroom still with a computer. You know, we we still can't exchange like papers and stuff. And it's still going to be a very limited education while they're in person. But um, so K-2 schools are starting to open up. It's very un- it's unclear at this point whether middle and high school will. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, it's getting towards the end of the school year. I mean, at this point, it seems pointless. So it is, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of up in the air in Philly right now, whether beyond K-2 to will be opened. Um, but the other thing I'll say, you know, it'd be very rational for some people to be like, why, why are they trying to do this? Why are they pushing us back? And I do think part of it is just a power play. And especially in Philly, gearing up for our contract fight, our contract expires in August. I kind of see this as like the first round of that fight. And again, if there's anything that's good, I think it is starting to galvanize our members just to get in the practice of fighting back. And I think this is going to be a tough contract fight. Um, so that's kind of part of what I think Lightfoot alluded to in that interview is that this is like a broader political fight. It's not really just about opening schools. It's, it's about being able to force teachers to do what they want us to do. Um, yeah,
1: because so, yeah. Thing, I, I mean, like it's, it's really hard to claim that, that it's it's that. You know, that it's it's really about education, that it's that it's that important to force people back for like six weeks or something at the end of the year. Right.
14: Yeah. Yeah. So, again, it's unclear. You know, if I had to bet right now, I still would bet that high school would not be going back by the end of the year. But I mean, as you see with the fans thing, like I'm never can never underestimate yeah, but- what our district will do. That makes no sense whatsoever. So are there
2: are there safeguards for the schools that do go back if numbers like spring back up?
14: Um, yeah. And we, the union negotiated a MOU or memorandum of understanding. It's kind of like a temporary special contract that does stipulate about, you know, testing regularly and like what happens if the case breaks out. Um, and again, there are certain schools where like some rooms are deemed uh, unsafe for people to be in because they test the ventilation levels. So again, there are some good protections in place. And like, I can't stress enough, you know, in this process, when this all started a year ago, you know, like, Even in perfect union, like mine is, my union has not been taken over by a caucus like in Chicago, but even in a perfect union, like how crucial unions are for like basic safety and stability, like to be able to know last last school year, you know, like we would be working from home and we had like a few weeks just off of school, like to know that my pay is guaranteed. And like, there is some check in place. It's just like, I can't express how much difference that just makes in your overall well-being. And just like one more example of how important unions, even imperfect unions are. Mm -hmm.
10: For us, it's I think it really is a testament to how hard the capitalists really wanted to open up the schools. It was bipartisan as much as, you know, both parties don't really want to admit it. You know, the Republicans wanted it to happen. They couldn't make it happen. And it looks like with Biden in office, you know, his first 100 days, One of his promises was reopening all the schools, whether or not that was safe doesn't matter. It was just, you know, it was one of his campaign promises. So he's going to follow through with it and he's going to allow the, you know, uh, Democratic governors and mayors to put the screws to people for it. And so the situation with us was immediately the beginning of the year, they wanted to open up the schools. And uh, the CTU, we at that point, all we had to do was call for a meeting to discuss a vote on whether or not to strike. And then they rescinded and the board said, okay, we can uh, teach distance. And that went on for quite some time. And then, um, and then it was just an ongoing anti-CTU, anti-teacher, you know, campaign from there on out. Like the mayor really wanted to make it clear. She felt that our advocacy for distance learning was because we were lazy, which is bullshit. It's like I'm working 12, 14 hour days, you know, re gearing all my old lessons for, Uh, distance. Like it's, it's more work and I hate it, but I also don't want to get COVID. And so it became just a back and forth and back and forth. And we almost struck again, had we not fought so hard and actually organized and prepared for a strike, we wouldn't have gotten anything. And we ended up getting an agreement out of this, which was far from perfect, but without it, we wouldn't have had any safeguards really in place in the classrooms. None of it would have been grievable is a big, big issue is that now you know, if something is violated, we can actually we actually have some teeth to an agreement. And unfortunately, like we couldn't get everything for um, people who have like immunocompromised uh, partners at home or family. But those folks can now take a unpaid leave of absence and, you know, have a job and have their health care. So um, we didn't get everything we deserve, but uh, it, it was just because the other side was fighting so hard. And, you know, insisting things like at the before uh, Lori Lightfoot said that to the New York Times, she said at the negotiating table, um, you know, I think you, you know, you're just trying to take over city government. Like it really kind of animated their side in negotiations. The idea of like, how dare you? Like, we're the experts Mm -hmm. in the room. You know, we're the ones that are going to do this. And we're like, no, we're the ones who are in the classrooms every day. And we understand how none of these things are going to work. And, you know mandating masks on pre-K students, some with special needs, it's going to be very difficult. Um, so even though, you know, we're and we're slowly folding in now, right now it's just pre-K through eight um, and citywide clinicians, people like social workers, and um, after spring break, which is in two weeks, they'll talk about high school teachers. I have a feeling just even just out of spite, the mayor might send high school teachers back bef- within those last two months of the school year. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um which right, which which goes back to to you know to Paul's point about how, you know, it, it seems like more of a show of power than uh, than than anything else. It's it's hard to see, you know, what you know what anybody else thinks they're uh, they're they're getting out of that, especially under the circumstances. Uh I also wanted uh, Kenzo to uh, to go back uh to something um you know Paul uh, sort of mentioned in in passing and that I think probably a lot of people who are watching this know what he's talking about but I'm, I'm guessing not everybody does uh, so which is why the, uh, the the CTU is is as uh, as good a union as it is right now and, and what the history is there.
10: Oh uh, yeah so it um, starts back in like maybe 2008. Uh, the Chicago public schools was under this program called Renaissance 2010, which started in 2004. And the idea there, it was another one of those great press releases where the the Chicago public schools was going to open up hundred brand new schools, small schools, um, which right there is false messaging. Small schools does not mean small class sizes. Uh, what this meant was they would close down some schools and then reopen three schools within a school. And two thirds of the new schools they would bring in would be non-union. So it was a pretty blatant union busting that the CTU at that time under our uh, old leadership, they were just not prepared or even really interested in fighting. And so a bunch of teachers got together and we decided that we wanted to um, stop these school closings, um, which... Were so dangerous like like schools would close that were hubs of the community students would have to for the first time in their lives cross gang lines to go to their new schools and kids were getting you know beaten and killed even there you know Darion albert was a student who got murdered um because of these programs and like I, I can name a few more um and so this program um was getting very little pushback and so like this kind of militant group of uh leftist and not even just leftists, but also milit- just militant teachers in the union came together, and we started having book groups. We read Naomi Klein's uh, Shock Doctrine, and that gave us a good framework for how the school system is built on this neoliberal model. Uh, we looked at New Orleans as a case study, and um, you know, saw Paul Vallis, you know, who was there too, and all that he did, and you know, we saw that it was it wasn't a conspiracy; it was a plan. And the plan had actors and had people involved in it. And a lot of these people were uh, controlling our schools. So we became almost like a shadow union. Uh, we came up with the name CORE, the Caucus of Rank and File Educators, and uh, slowly just started organizing. Um, our first big win was uh, we won two people to our pension board, which is kind of a lower stakes um, election than you know the union office election, but it was one where it was like our trial balloon to see how well we organized and you know where we needed to um, kind of beef up our uh, field or, um, operation. And then in 2010 uh, we did not expect to but we won union leadership and that was the year that Karen Lewis um, rest in peace became the president of the Chicago Teachers Union and uh, that it, it, it was it was a, a big struggle. For the first few years the first couple of years the media and you know act uh, just influential people in the public wanted to say we were a fluke we were a freak show that just won by accident um you know they hurled insults at you know our leadership but then we showed that like we were making connections with communities with community orgs with parents um, with local school councils which are like these mini school boards that are actually elected um in individual schools And um, because of that, we led a successful strike in 2012, Uh, the first strike in 25 years. It was uh, a year into Rahm Emanuel's first term as mayor, pissed him off. You know, that was when he, I think, realized that he always hated us. But at that point, he saw us, I think, as um, a formidable opponent. And it energized the entire city and other orgs started blossoming from there.
2: Um I, uh, I have a I have a clip of um Karen Lewis on Democracy Now yeah, um, let's do it. the, the okay. day the day the strike ended, pretty much talking about what they achieved with it
4: terms of salary, what did you achieve? Well, we fought off merit pay, which was something that they were absolutely adamant about. They wanted to take away our lanes, which are are for achievement of uh, advanced degrees. They wanted to take away our steps, which are for experience. And it's the way we've been doing things traditionally for some time. They wanted to replace that with some sort of merit pay piece. Um, or, or, or as they call it differentiated compensation we, that were tied to evaluations and we were adamantly against that um and for a variety of reasons and that took an awful lot of wrangling so in terms of that you know i mean austerity contract compared to what we had before um, but at least we were able to maintain this. And, and when we argued about it, they said, well, we're giving you your lanes and stops." And I said, but you need to understand, we had never lost them. So that was something in your mind that you are giving. Um, and I think that's problematic. Um, we also got a right to recall in um, schools that ha- where, where enrollment drops. If that enrollment comes back up, if they projected incorrectly, um, then we, we got the right to recall which we've never had, by the way. So in many districts, um, when things like this happen, the right to recall is no big deal, but now we actually have it. So there are small things. We got an anti-bullying measurement, I mean, uh, an article. And one of the issues about that is that our numbers have been so miserable in schools. We've had a lot of problems with principals um, changing people's programs in order to set them up for failure. Um, it's like I know of a nationally board-certified teacher in science who taught 7th and 8th grade science, and she was given a kindergarten class. I mean, this is like an inappropriate you know, there's no pedagogical reason for this. So these are the kinds of things that were going on in Chicago that were were really driving people to, to, easily uh, decide to make a decision to strike. I mean, the problem is he has the wrong idea of what this union is. Now, that may be so for other unions, but we purposely try to change the culture of union so that the union is about education, is about empowering teachers and paraprofessionals and clinicians. Um, And as a result, the union officers took pay cuts, um, significant pay cuts, so that we could have an organizing department so that we could have a research department so that we didn't do the union the way the old union was done because those days are over because people like Bruce Rauner can separate the union from the teachers. And this is, the, this is where they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. And they acted that way the entire time because they didn't understand what we were really doing, which was organizing our members, not about the whole, yes, we have to negotiate for whatever, but that's not our main focus. So our main focus is trying to make education better because we feel like we can solve some of the problems. The the longer school day was a hot, buttery mess until we sat down with them and said, okay, look, you can't afford to pay us this entire length of day because the arbitrator told you that. So here's a way to figure this out by staffing up so that you can save some money. We actually brought that to the uh, board because they were clueless they were absolutely clueless and trying to figure out the problem we're teachers we're problem solvers and for bruce runner has to remember i'm two years out of the classroom so for me not a bureaucratic union hack sorry that 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 tag just won't hang on
1: First
14: yeah. of all, rest in peace i know i was gonna say i mean what a figure karen lewis was um yeah
1: she yeah definitely I, love that.
2: I love that Oh, uh, we're teachers. We're problem solvers. Line at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
10: She yeah, that, and that was uh, prescient too. Like Bruce Rahner became our mayor three years after this, after she gave that speech. Like she saw where power was, and like was able to isolate it. And like I could never have asked for a better political mentor than her.
1: Yeah. So she was the uh, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union until 2014. She passed away uh, last month. Since we're we live in an unjust universe. Rahm Emanuel is still alive. Right. Uh, but So uh, Karen, uh, Karen Lewis is dead, uh, which, yeah, I,
14: I was going to say too, I mean, I can't overstate like how important that 2014 or 12, 2012 the strike was
10: 2012.
14: Yeah. 2012 Chicago's teacher strike was, and like, I mean, just to tell a little story, you know um, that strike happened and probably one of the, only things productive coming out of Occupy Philly was uh, we formed this labor working group. At the time, I was in a socialist organization called Solidarity that had Mm -hmm. um, a few people who were, you know, intimately involved in Chicago Teacher Strike as rank and file members. And we, you know, organized for a few Chicago teachers to come to Philly and speak to an audience of Philly teachers and basically say, this is what was going on. This is how we did this. And that was the birth of our caucus, Caucus mm-hmm. of Working Educators. Um, and I think that is what inspired the UCOR network, the United Caucus of and File Educators. So, I mean, I know Chicago Teacher Strike is mentioned a lot on the left, and as it should be, like, it really, just, like, was a catalyst for so many things. Like, I'm not sure you would have the uh, Los, Los Angeles Teacher Strike of 2019 if you didn't have the CTU strike first.
10: The cool thing about that, too, is that in 2009, before we took uh, power, we actually went out to UTLA and met mm-hmm. with their because they have like they had like a mixed leadership of like some mm-hmm. radicals and some uh, old folks, old you know, old guard folks. And like we sat and they, they taught us lessons. And uh, then, um, you know, we took those lessons and we, you know, won leadership. And then after we had a few years in, like we were giving them lessons back. So, right. It's just so important to have these kind of networks together because. You know, no one's going to teach us how to how to fight the bosses, really. Right.
14: And what's really cool is then now you go to the red for red and West Virginia, for example, which I don't think it's 100 percent accurate to say that strike was spontaneous, but it was more spontaneous than CTU, let's say. And, you know, coming out of that, even though I think you could say that was a success, like they actually didn't really have a structure in place. And now, like those people that led that strike are part of this u network. Which is United Caucus of Rank File Educators, a national network of you know teacher caucuses and activists, and now they're kind of learning how to implement this structure to kind of have a more um, sustainable uh, structure in West Virginia to try and consolidate these gains. So you know that network is invaluable.
1: Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. Uh, before uh, before I get uh, let you guys go, uh, I think it's a little bit of a. Um, uh, a little bit of a shift from what we were talking about, but I know there's one last thing for us wanted to ask you guys about.
2: Oh, um, I wanted to talk about like a there's there's a clip for it. We don't have to watch it. Um, uh, I don't know. I know that Paul's talked about this before, like a like a just transition. Um, if we're gonna pass a green new deal or something like that, like labor obviously is going to be on one side of that, and I mean environmentalists are going to be on the other side of that, unless there's some kind of just transition where you know union jobs are protected. And I, I just wanted to hear uh, Paul's thoughts on that. And, and how that could be done.
14: Yeah, well, uh, it's funny you say this because Wednesday on the Jack and Michelle, we're actually going to have a guest to talk right about this. And I mean, a great model for how they've started to do this is in New York and unions came together. A lot of the building trades, which I think is the key element here, but not just them, um, came together and I hammered out basically a vision uh, document that was very concrete and pragmatic and laid out. This is how many jobs in renewable energy you could create in New York State, and you know, through public transit expansion, through uh, retrofitting buildings, through solar and wind, and, you know, and you know, it's very practical um, in terms of the the amount of jobs and how many. So they kind of united labor around that and started going um, from there. And like right now, you know, the building trades in much of New York is like heavily bought into renewable energy. And, like, there's offshore wind projects that are starting um, that have project labor agreements signed with unions. So like um that work and there's a report that they released um the group called climate jobs in new york i forget the name of the report from 2013 but the report where they lay out this vision um, i think that's a model for other places i think that's how you can get unions bought in because i think the the challenge right now it's not like it's not like building trades people wake up and be like how many trees can i destroy today or Mm -hmm. how can i destroy the environment today it's more like they want jobs Right. Whether they are clean or not. So like Yeah, it's like a right
2: it's like a right now thing. Like right. So the challenge is to...
14: and I think if you ask them, most of them will be like, Yeah, I would like a renewable energy thing. I think so now it's just like showing them like actually this is real life. And in New York, there's and I'm sure other places they're starting to see like this is not just like fantasy. I'm actually working jobs in this sector. Um and I think I say I think that's just how you have to approach it from like that practical thing and actually it kind of relates to schools like something we're trying to initiate in philly is like a vision for green schools um i mean our buildings on average are like 70 80 years old i mean mold lead asbestos all kinds of problems so you know we're wanting like collaborate with the building trades and you know uh retrofilling these buildings and um making them non-toxic but at the same time making them um clean energy buildings and it's a good thing also because it doesn't involve taking away anyone's job in the fossil fuel sector right. and I, you know and i'm not saying eventually we do got to think about the pipelines and what to do about those jobs but i think it's a good starting point because you know it's literally a win-win for everyone except the rich who would tax to fund it you know so yeah. no one's losing a job you're only adding jobs at least at first i think that's a good thing to start on um to get that buy-in for maybe you know a tougher um tougher sell but yeah on wednesday as uh, kale is uh, a. <laughs> We'll have Lara Skinner from the Worker Institute. And I mean, I'm excited for that because she was instrumental in kind of pulling the unions together, the building trades that everyone is saying is reactionary. Like, no, in New York, they're actually moving forward on this in a real way. And she's going to talk about like how how that happened.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think that they're reactionary. Um, yeah, I know you don't. imagination, know, but I think it is a real thing that you know Biden canceled the Keystone pipeline, and the first set of talking points is divide and conquer for people that would be you know working on the left, like it, like oh, like here's an ecological issue or an environmental issue, and here's a, an issue with jobs. Like, don't you want people to have right. jobs? I think it's really important to start talking about that. Otherwise, it's going to be so easy for like I like both the capitalist class and for uh, like. Politicians that are running to go, yeah, well, you know, it would be nice to save the world, like, and you know, they put it in individualist terms, but then be like, but like, you know, you're going to take away all these jobs. I thought you guys like jobs.
1: Yeah, so I if think you're, if you're not like, yeah, but I mean, if if you're doing on the backs of, of working class people, you know, that's how you get yellow vests. Uh, and then if uh, and and it's also, I think, particularly, I mean, important to to talk about because I I think that uh, this is. You know, much like the Chicago stuff, which, which, which I always thought was like the ultimate uh, refutation of the, uh, the myth that uh, Obama was this wonderful progressive who's just hindered by Republicans. You know, that's like, OK, look, here's a city where, you, you know, you have to, like, do some work to find any Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> it's run by the guy who was essentially Obama's first term co-president, you know, Rob Emanuel back then. And, uh, and look at what he's doing. Right. You know, and and it's and similarly, I think, um, you know, the uh, certainly in the you know, we'll see what happens under Biden, you know, but uh, but in the the Obama approach to this stuff, uh, really, I think, rationally gave people a lot of the idea, a lot of people the idea that any anything that was going to be done for them in terms of jobs and transition would kind of be going to be a joke, you know, because the right. Obama administration approach was to, uh, to sprinkle a few technology training centers and, you know, in Appalachia, you know, as they were, you know, forcing closed uh, coal mines and, you know, essentially tell middle-aged, uh, you know, laid off coal, uh, coal workers learn to code.
14: Right. And, you know, I'm actually kind of interested how this is going to play out with Biden. Cause I will say, I mean, probably the only good thing at the uh, DNC was there was a small little segment about green energy featuring an electrician union member. And often Biden does frame stuff in terms of jobs, um, union jobs. He kind of pairs that a lot when talking about green new deal, not as much as we'd like, you know, not as consistently. And also, you know, Jane McAlevey mentioned this and I found it kind of interesting. So the, the secretary of labor, Marty Walsh, who was, Mayor Boston, but before that he was head of um, according to Jane, a, f- a fairly progressive section of the building trades. And she's kind of wondering if someone like him he might actually be able to facilitate buy-in from building trades on some green infrastructure in a way that others can't because he's one of them, you know, um, and Biden has kind of talked a lot about making a lot of money available for green infrastructure again, i'm and not I'm not saying Biden's bringing social democracy. don't worry. On, but I think it's kind of interesting to see if maybe someone like Marty Walsh can kind of like warm up the mm. the climate for that. Oh, not literally that. I didn't mean that as a, pun. <laughs> uh, you know, lay, lay the groundwork for maybe some more buy in from the building trades. And Biden tends to sometimes do a decent job of talking about green stuff in terms of union jobs. So I don't know. Mm-hmm.
10: And there's going to be people like a Jay-Z, Penny and other retail. Those jobs aren't coming back. Give them the tools. Six months, you're going to become a computer coder. We'll pay for it. Jeez. And you'll get millions of people to sign up for that. They are not going back to parts of the retail economy. Mm-hmm. And we need to give them a lifeline to what's the next chapter.
14: And there's going to be. I mean, yeah. it's like. It's 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 like satire. Yes. I yeah. mean, you can't you can't make it up. Uh, what a- yeah, no, exactly. <laughs>
1: um that's yeah I, I mean that that is that is like a uh that is like a Chapo sketch of what they would say <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right yeah i mean no it's awesome well there's always the
2: most there's always the most like i don't know uh, like biggest example of something and i feel like ron Manuel fills a role as like the most cartoonish example of a sociopathic neoliberal
1: <laughs> yeah exactly all right uh thank you guys so much uh yep. always uh always a pleasure to uh to to talk to uh to both of you uh, so uh, paul uh when uh, when is that uh episode you're talking about aaron
14: oh that's gonna be this uh this wednesday at six o'clock or uh, six o'clock eastern standard time um on jackman youtube channel all
1: right uh thanks paul uh kenzo i remind people where they can check out your stuff
10: yeah, go to classtime.gg. That'll take you directly to our YouTube where you pretty much get all the information. We're doing Meet the Left this Sunday with David Story from the Valley David uh, Labor Report, Luisa Diaz of the YU Mad Pod, and Leftist Lorax of the uh, Left Link Vets. So that'll be at 6 p.m. Sunday.
1: All right. Sounds good. Thanks, and then
10: guys. And will be on the following week. And the full cast isn't fully casted yet. All right. Sounds
1: good. Talk to you then. Right, Bye. Take care. All right. Uh, so let us do our Biden update. Do you have the uh, Do you have the Biden update graphic?
2: Yeah, gotta throw that up and go. I'm gonna I'm gonna come up with like some kind of animation or something that you know that I can throw up when. when yeah, we're yeah. Do
1: let's this. let's. Uh, I think I think we need some actual music for the Biden graphic. That's, uh, yeah. that's Not you just going. Boo, 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 boo.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> All right. Most low tech uh music.
1: <laughs>
3: music,
2: music
1: thing I mean, especially because all the other music on the show is so awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the, the, the intro and outro and intermission music, and then somehow the Biden update is boo, 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 boo. <laughs> <laughs> all
2: right. Um, so for our Biden update today, I wanted to go over um what's in the Pro Act because I think it's important that you know we can talk about it until we're blue in the face and how it needs to pass, but uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I if you don't if nobody knows what's in it, they're just kind of, you know, going, well, unions are important. Unions are important. You know what I mean? Like and and not really pushing um, a lot of the messaging that really should be pushed. So, you know, it passed the House um, with 226 to 205. Five Republicans actually broke rank to vote for it. Um, and one Democrat voted like broke ranks, uh, Henry Queller, who almost lost um, a couple of years ago to, to a progressive. Um, but didn't and is one of like the worst Democrats in the house. Um, so yeah, so this is kind of a fact sheet that I found um, about the about the pro Act. And it kind of puts things into like three different categories. So the first thing is obviously um, that they're going to be able to penalize companies that violate workers' rights, which reading this is something that I found really amazing how little uh, the NLRB can actually do to companies that violate rights even if they do come up with a ruling um, so it would empower it, they'd be empowered to uh, fine companies either fifty thousand dollars for civil violations or ten thousand dollars for ignoring a ruling, which still means that you know they have to rule that they're breaking workers' rights and then come back to the NLRB have another like case kind of and then be go oh well, you're not following our instructions, um, but but still it's you know it, these fines are coming up for companies, um, you know they would they would have to immediately seek an injunction to reinstate employees that are building a case because right now one of the things that um companies can do is just kind of indefinitely keep somebody unemployed which puts pressure on them um to you know drop the case because they're like you know what like maybe this isn't worth it maybe my rights were violated but like i I need a job right now like they're bringing in other people so it would protect a, a worker who uh decides to bring a case to the nlrb um in that moment and um another thing that that is amazing that we, that the NLRB doesn't have right now, or workers don't have right now, it would uh, allow, um, it would make workers able to hear a case, uh, hear a worker's case in court if the NLRB decides not to uh, hear it, which protects, you know, workers in a situation like another Trump administration, where they can just go, you know what, I don't want to hear these cases about these companies, and then they can kind of provide a bullshit reason for that. Um, So yeah, so those are important things on that line of it. Um, It would it would protect union elections and it would bring employers out of the union election process. So things like um, Amazon's doing right now where you kind of have these meetings where they bring in a a account like a um, I don't know, they bring somebody in that kind of is an anti-union person to like give them a presentation about why they shouldn't unionize. Um, Right now, they can just kind of do whatever they want with that. It would also allow them to have an election. um, It would also allow them to have an election off off premises. So they're not kind of literally intimidated by the boss or, um, you know, or management, you know, just because they decide to hold this vote, they, they have, they can do it, they know, secretly quickly in in a place that the boss doesn't um, see them. And, you know, another thing is that, uh, they would, employers would be, would have to post a list of your rights in the workplace. So they can't, you know, they can't sneak in and, and make you feel intimidated about not having rights. You have to know what your rights are. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's the, uh, there's the part where, um, so they're going to protect and expand collective bargaining rights, repeal right to work. Um, you know, if some, if a group of workers do decide to unionize the free riders that, you know, people that kind of just get those benefits without um, the, the, the people that get those benefits without joining a union are paying dues, which is kind of what right to work States have right now. They, they would have to pay dues in that uh, situation. If the company does decide to unionize and they want those benefits um, it protects workers who want to strike in solidarity with other companies, which is something amazing. Again, I didn't know but that we didn't have like, you know what i mean like
1: no yeah the fact that you can't do sympathy strikes uh is uh is absurd and i mean I'll, I'll give it a quick example from my own experience uh for uh for 2 years uh when my wife and i were working as uh adjunct uh, professors at, at Rutgers, uh i was i was on the um i was on like the executive board of the uh of the adjunct uh of the adjuncts union you know for uh, for 2 years and uh there was a situation where uh, we were even trying to bargain like in coordination uh at least because uh they you know stupidly enough uh the uh the graduate students and the full-time professors were in one local and and the adjuncts were at another and there was like a like labor lobbying what it is like it it wasn't entirely up to us you know like we couldn't just say announce like we're merging back together you know like they had yeah. uh, uh that like, or at least there were some like risks to like making that request. so we were even trying to like bargain together but then like it got to the point where the uh, where the full-time uh, full-timers union almost went out on strike. Uh, this was like in my last semester that I was I was there and uh, and people you know kept asking me uh, what I would um you know like, like like students and stuff kept asking me like what I would do if they did you know because uh, we're we're not uh, it would actually have been illegal you know for us to uh, to uh, to go out on strike in support of the full timers yeah so like, even in that situation where it's like a union representing essentially part time and full time employees doing exactly the same job uh, because yeah. they're two different locals one of them can't go on strike because of issues about another then. Uh, you know, I mean, I always told them that, you know, uh, you know, look, I mean, whatever, you know, we can't technically go on strike, but you know, Kathy Burgess didn't raise any scabs, you know, I'm I'm certainly not going into teaching, you know, if this yeah. happened, but like I could have been fired if it had come to that. And then and, and uh, it gives
2: I mean, it gives uh, you know, employers and bosses like a, a way to break people up into these groups and then intimidate each group. Like separately, you know what I mean. Like, like your case is is a perfect example of um, no, exactly, yeah. Like and because
1: then, well, then, like, when the other shoe dropped, like, so the full-timers union uh, almost went on strike, and then uh, they were like teetering on the edge of it, and then uh, they ended up settling, you know, and agreeing on a contract, and then the adjuncts hadn't agreed on a contract yet, and uh, so what that, um, and they actually couldn't like stick it out. You know, like 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 they were legally prohibited, you know, from, uh, you know, like they got to the point where it's like, look, it's good. It's we've we've run out of excuses that, you know, that we think they'll they'll buy. You know, they can't they couldn't hold out in t- until the adjuncts contract was settled before they settled their contract. Uh, so uh, so at the end of the day, of course, the uh, uh, the adjuncts got a way worse contract than they would have. And obviously this is an example that is playing out among a, you know, a fairly privileged, you know, layer of workers. Uh, But it gives you a, it gives you a sense. It's the kind of thing that comes up all the time that like, you know, uh, some, you know, like teamsters might get away with like not like delivering past picket lines and stuff. Uh, But, um, but if it really came to it, you know, like, like they'd be forced to uh, because, you know, because you, you cannot, uh, go out on strike over issues that aren't playing out in your workplace yeah uh, you know which uh, so you, you can't uh, you can't go out on strike in order to support another strike. so it's literally a log at solidarity.
2: And, and it really makes it so that union, like union things are not like a, union drives are not like a labor movement. It's like just individual situations, which is what you see playing out with the Marco Rubio thing, kind of bringing it back to that. Like each of these is an individual situation. We don't have to have any rulings on employers in general. You know, we're going to take it workplace by workplace. But if, if this is, if the PRO Act is put in place, it's not workplace by workplace. It's entire industries now that are allowed to bargain together because suddenly you're not just stuck in your workplace. Um, You know that that way so on the same uh token another thing that it protects um is the and then and then of course there's the most important one but but another smaller one is um it protects intermittent strikes so if you're striking and then you go back to work and then your boss kind of um like like does the same thing again you want to go on strike right away like right now you're not protected in the case of strikes that are kind of like like strikes that don't happen all at once um so, which is another interesting tactic that they use because at some point, some people do have to probably go to work and they can just kind of, they're not protected by by their right to strike anymore in that sense. Um, which I guess brings us to the most important um, part of uh, expanding collective bargaining rights is AB5, the law that um, Prop 22 was, was passed to... Uh, to end, which is a California, a California measure, um, that you know suddenly, suddenly all these companies like uh, like Uber, Lyft, Postmates that are trying to put workers like nationally as independent contractors, um, so that, like we they would be protected under the same laws as other workers if they can pass the ABC uh, test. Um, to determine their their worker their worker status, which makes it so that all these companies can't keep just changing employment status around. So suddenly, if you try to unionize, you're not workers; you're independent contractors. Yeah, and that was just that federal law, which you know, Uber and Lyft and all that stuff already have a bunch of anti union talking points ready, and they were ready to bring that out as like a national a national goal to get all the states to pass it. And this would end that drive right in its uh, right in its early early days.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, and, and this is, I mean, this is all stuff that uh, that if it happened uh, the, you know, would be, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, this, this would be a, a game changer. I mean, I know, I know, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got my, my internal Sean Richmond, you know, chiding me It's been too, you know, too uh, hyperbolic about this and pointing out that there are lots of obstacles, you know, that, that, that couldn't be, you know, couldn't be solved by something like this, but I mean, just in terms of the basic mechanics of at least some of the horrendous, not all of them by any means—but you know, some of the most horrendous things uh, that, like some of the most outrageously anti-worker things about American labor law, uh, this would uh, this would make a um, this would make a huge difference uh, if if it happened and make workers like way bolder, you know, on uh, on the shop floor. You know, because... it, would, it would
2: make a, a labor, I mean, a labor movement possible. Like right now, you know, with all of these things stopping it, like it's not even really a movement, I guess you could say like, you know, all of these, All it's a bunch of union drives in different places that, that can't like, aren't legally necessarily allowed to coordinate with each other, aren't legally allowed to set up like a, like a collective bargaining agreement for an entire industry, which is like what the trade unions used to do of old, you know what I mean? Like. They used to be able to set up, you know, standards for an entire industry for how um, people should be treated because there were just so many unions in different places that, you know, that that they would all kind of come together to discuss that, and that's not even possible right now. Uh, let alone, yeah. let alone individual union drives.
1: Yeah. Right. No. I mean, I, I and I, and I think, um, like, yeah. I mean, that and I and it's this is you know this is a big thing although really the question and you know part of what makes this the uh, the biden update uh is what like you know Nomiki gave us a, an optimistic read on on the possibilities earlier uh but there's also a pessimistic read of of what's going on here uh which is that this this wouldn't have sailed through the house in the uh, in the first place uh, if people didn't know that it was, uh, that it was largely symbolic, you know, that, that it, that it wasn't going to, you know, yeah. that it wasn't, it wasn't going to pass the Senate uh, which is, you know, like at, at a certain point uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I almost wish. So there's a, um, there's a uh, <laughs> extremely stupid podcast host and, uh, and, and prolific Twitter user uh, who Let's just say her name rhymes with Shmami Sharice. Uh, and uh and and you know, and she was tweeting about how this is like uh this is actually going to uh you know suppress class struggle because uh unions that just do uh that, that just form infrastructure for the Democratic Party, uh, you know, are um are actually like a, you know managerial thing. And this is class
2: capture, right? That was her uh phrase that she used. It's the yeah, class yeah, yeah. capture of the
1: <laughs> yeah which, which which of course you know is uh, in the real world obviously both uh democrats like jeff bezos for example uh and uh and republican employers you know fight equally hard to uh, to stop uh unionization drives none of them think that this will suppress uh class struggle and and i'm i'm very like there is a legitimate uh reason to be concerned that like you know like this gets into what we've been kind of talking about every Biden update that the mansion and cinema thing i mean it's not that it's not true that these people uh are going to be roadblocks to to anything like this happening i mean that that is absolutely true but at a certain point you wonder whether at least in certain cases uh that's like the best thing that could happen for some Democrats because it's like that cartoon with the dog straining its leash, you know, barking at the bigger dog, and then the leash comes off and it like picks it up and brings it back to the owner. Owner yeah. picks up the leash and they start straining again, you know, that uh <laughs> that if they didn't know that they had the excuse of mansion and cinema or, you know, the excuse of the um of of the filibuster, uh, then uh they would be a lot less willing to uh to vote for important progressive things. Well no, look at look
2: at Pelosi's a perfect example. Um you know in in the sense of uh she has stock in Tesla, she has stock in a lot of these like you know what I mean she's a Silicon Valley kind of representative. So like you know and she literally has money in in a lot of these um in a lot of these companies that would want to uh change worker classification from being a, a worker to an independent contractor or a freelancer. So you have to wonder if if she didn't think that it wouldn't pass the Senate um you know, would she would she really be you know voting against her own pocketbook? But at the same time, it also provides some kind of opportunity. I mean, just to take the optimistic side, I guess. Um, when we talked about uh, the COVID bill and the minimum wage, talked about Mansion kind of being, I think, someone that you could use the bully pulpit against. I think unions are a good example of that. You know, I, I don't necessarily think it's happening right now, but if if people went to West Virginia and just constantly ran Mansion anti union ads. I think that unions are an important part, uh, important enough part of his constituency that maybe he would relent in in a case like that. You know, yeah, what
1: I mean? even with a lot of people who um, who like lost jobs at coal mines or are no longer at a union, you know, the uh, the memory, yeah. you know, could uh, could still be powerful. And and I mean, I don't want to like, I don't want running,
2: and he's he's gained power over memory, like the the memory of a time when uh workers in west virginia felt like democrats were fighting for them and democrats controlled west virginia which wasn't even that long ago it was like 1990 you know what i mean as everything deindustrialized, it it slipped away because you know a lot of people like as i've said over and over again on the show like there are plenty of people when you just when you just turn politics into cultural issues there are plenty of people who are conservative you know but but you know, there was no, a time in West Virginia yeah. was like a labor a labor hub, like for unions, like to the point where they could stop trains from even, you know, de- like delivering stuff with with their unions. Like, the uh, y- like unions were such a powerful force in, uh, in West Virginia and like the coal mining unions. Like, uh, Manchin kind of has run, um, on on being like the last Democrat left, and then conceded to all things uh, conservative because he's like, well, you know, they don't really want me to be. Uh, a, a liberal like like senator but I don't think it's like cinema where it's just some deeply held like cynicism i think in his case it's it's a man it's a man who it, it's a man who sees his state turning like blood red pretty much um that's trying to hold on to his last little bit of power um so I think yeah. he's more movable than some
1: no I, yeah so that that's interesting and and I don't want to um yeah, I mean, Kristen Cinema clearly like there's some sort of like, uh, uh, you know, like there's there's some sort of um, like deep, you know, Epstein conspiracy blackmail thing going on there, <laughs> from, uh, from from Code Pink and the Green Party to, uh, you know, doing the uh, the minimum wage, you know, thumbs down. But uh, there's actually uh, a,
2: there's a part in that interview that we watched a couple weeks ago with Kristen Cinema. We're later in on the thing. She says, you know, the best pe- the best way to get, um, like, like normal, moderate people in Arizona to support the things we want is to talk to them, like, in a more moderate tone, a way they understand. And it feels like it went from that to, like, oh, I'm going to be the moderate person that I'm pretending to be. And, like, that was her full capture, I think. Because it's an interesting quote in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, I mean, in, in Manchin's case, I don't know. I mean, uh, it, it is... I don't think that uh, you know how vulnerable he is to what kind of primary challenge in West Virginia I wouldn't want to try to pronounce on too confidently, right. like whether that would actually work to uh, go into West Virginia and do a massive ad blast all the time. you know, Joe Manchin is anti-union. I mean, I don't want to like pretend that that I can be more sure than I am that that would work. but like, fuck, if you don't try. Yeah. Like like if you're not at least trying uh, to uh, to do stuff. uh, I don't think I
2: don't think he's vulnerable to a primary challenge. I think he's vulnerable to a general election challenge, though. And, um, you know, from from a Republican. And there's always going to be him walking this weird line, which it, it seems like he does over and over again. Like he walks this line where he's just he's just like a Democrat enough in name, but then votes like a Republican. But I think if things turn the other way and and all of a sudden there was a push for unions in West Virginia, I don't think he, he wouldn't suddenly be like Bernie Sanders, but like, like I, I think that, I think that he is cynical enough that he would just be like, he would just go with whatever he thinks will keep him power. Um, I, I don't think it's like an immediate thing that you could just be like, Joe Manchin's anti-union. And then he'd be like, oh no, I'm not, I'm pro-union. But like, I do think that, that like there is a, there, there is an argument for using the bully pulpit. That's that's what I'll say.
1: No, for, for sure, right? And, and again, you know, whether – so the idea would be that the uh, – that would be, like, basically playing hardball that if uh, – that you're running all these ads that would uh, endanger his support come the next general election so that even though, of course, the Republican he was running against would also, you know, would be even more anti-union than him, uh, it would still be, you know, like the – he would be worried that his base wouldn't turn out uh in uh, in that election that's the uh, that's the idea yeah yeah no and, and again like i think that whatever like i think doing that i think running primary challenges and how you like it's not that these things would definitely work it's that if you're not waging an all-out war you know to to get mansion uh to uh to, to flip these positions or you know cinema to the extent that might be possible uh, then you've just kind of given up on uh, accomplishing, you know, big things. And I know that the, like, uh you know, corporate media is treating, you know, Biden as the reincarnation of FDR because he signed something that's actually, in a lot of ways, pretty similar to what Trump signed, uh, yeah. you know, the previous COVID relief bill. I mean, you could argue that in Trump's case-
2: indirect. I mean, in direct payments, it's even less... Uh- <laughs> Or like, or unemployment—it's even less, um, even less big than what Trump signed. Like, you know, what I mean, like, like Democrats were able to whittle down unemployment to half of what the original unemployment a week was—the maximum you could get.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. So, and and there are like big things, like like in terms of temporary relief, like there are really big things in that bill, uh, but like, there's no permanent, you know, anything really uh, yeah. in, in, in there. Uh, you know, like something like the PRO Act, like that would be a big deal, you know, like that would actually um, like like that would actually represent, you know, a, uh, a meaningful shift. But I mean, if you're not going to do things that are clearly uh, in a way that a bill that has uh, uh, that has um, like creates this category of 17 million people who got a check from, you know, from Biden, but not for Trump. I mean, like if you're counted on that. As your big improvement of uh, ordinary uh, uh, ordinary people's uh, people's lives, uh, to uh, to get people to uh, to vote for you in two years, what it would otherwise damn near be a law of nature that you would lose seats, you know, in the uh, in the midterm. I mean, that's a, that's that's a pretty. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a pretty weak, uh, you know, weak read to hang all those hopes on.
2: Yeah. And then there's, o- there's always another election coming up. You know what I mean? Like anyone that wants to argue that like, you know, the Democrats are going to lose seats. There's always another election coming up. Like the the second somebody gets into power, they're in there for five seconds. Then all of a sudden the argument is like, Oh, like, you know, we're, we're going to lose seats so we can't do anything too big, but next time. And it's like, no, we're, we're a month into Biden's administration. Like, you know what I mean? Like he could do anything he fucking wants right now, and you know, I, I bet that if Biden had hit the minimum wage issue harder, he could have like changed. Well, not mansion, maybe, but like, you know, I think Biden could have pressured at least the two Delaware senators to vote for it. Like, you know what I mean? Like Biden didn't stand up for it. He immediately had people go out and say, "Well, we don't think it's going to pass the COVID relief bill. We just don't." Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that the bully poll bit is kind of an underrated thing, and and you can really see what a what a. What a president's uh, ambitions are based on, you know, what they're willing to go to war for.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, so um, let's see. Uh, all right, so uh, I think we're almost ready to uh, to cut it for tonight. we am gonna we uh, gonna take a um, uh, couple of uh, of super chat questions uh, if we've got them. We've got one from I, I believe you pronounce it Ka- Calais. <laughs> Calais. Calais. <laughs> LA. Uh, s uh Kelly birrockoks I believe that's right uh so says uh i'm uh, I'm fascinated by uh, matt Dimmick's argument in jacket and catalyst uh that what we need are greater labor freedoms not labor fri- labor rights uh, uh cites Sweden, uh what do you think uh so I have uh, I've not read this article but uh to uh to fill us in on the details of this uh we have a last minute surprise extra guest uh Brooks, yeah.
13: God damn it, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm holding it right now. Like, let me see if I can remember this. Um, it's something that, uh, okay. So just to, just to lay something out first, I, Matt Dimmick has put forward this argument uh, in Catalyst and Jackman, this was maybe a year or two ago. Um, and it's somewhat in contrast to some of the work that Alex Gorovich has been doing uh, where he's been making the case that we need to revive the right to strike. Uh, and it's interesting because I've talked to Alex Korovitch about this, and he actually is also kind of similarly really interested in Dimick's <laughs> argument, because it's not an obvious counter argument, it's just a different kind of argument, and what Dimmick is basically saying is that, uh, when we just look kind of a historical comparative lens on the U.S. labor movement and the Nordic uh, labor movements. The U.S. labor movement, uh, a lot of our progress has come through uh, the expansion of labor law at the federal level and most of the actual uh, protections are won through individual contracts within specific workplaces or between a, you know, a specific union with a specific employer. Uh, and, and and again, those terms have largely been uh, overseen or carried out by the NLRB. Whereas Dimmick is saying uh, the contrast would be to look at the Nordic countries. He also, I believe he also uses France as another possible candidate. That's an entirely different uh, situation. Whereas with the Nordic countries, they never had uh, – they, they do not have, for instance, uh, a minimum wage on the books. Like there is no Yeah, like, like, like
1: every once in a while you'll see right-wingers bringing this up, you know. Uh, right. then it's like, oh, hey, you guys love these Nordic countries. They don't even have a minimum wage. Mm-hmm, but, of course, right. what they're missing is that they have incredibly powerful unions that in practice enforce a higher wage floor. You know, yeah, then...
2: trade trade unions, which is what we were talking about um, earlier in the episode where, you know, you have to have a labor movement that's able to bargain. They're, they have to be able to bargain in unison so that floor gets set up um, right. at that
5: point.
13: Well, so not even just – because, of course, you know, there's trade unions all over the world. I, like, It's really specific. The...
1: Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, kale is frozen, but if I had to guess – uh probably what he was going to bring up is sectoral bargaining uh which is uh which which is like what you Am
13: I back? oh he's, he's,
2: he's back he's back oh,
13: all right <laughs> uh it's like um you should have you should just stitch me in uh in post and i'm just homer simpson with the clock spinning around Ben was <laughs> getting ready to,
2: to steal your argument so i'm glad you came yeah. back to, to stand up <laughs> i know
13: i caught you last minute um no no but like but what i was gonna say is that like what the, the distinctive feature that dimick is pointing out is that there's uh not just trade unions but there's the uh trade union confederation which is it's like sectoral bargaining to its full extent that it is this is the the organization that represents all workers all unions in all workplaces and they are directly negotiating with uh employers uh so um so again his his argument i mean so there is an argument um but just the starting point is like we can just look at the actual histories of, of these two parts of the world and it is in fact true that uh you know at the same time that labor law has uh increased uh workers capacity to organize through uh the uh the the creation of the nlrb and the wagner act uh it has also been severely curtailed by the same means of instituting greater more uh draconian Mm -hmm. labor law and so much of it is also both what is said and then what isn't said that uh there's a certain formality that also kind of puts limitations on class struggle in a way that uh swedish workers do not face that same kind of those same kinds of restrictions and so again i think it's it's an interesting thing because when we're thinking about practically like what is the actual programmatic demand in this moment like how do we get labor uh you know back fighting and uh in, in a position where you know one win can lead to a further win do we you know it seems pretty obvious that the pro act, not just because it's good in its own terms, but because it's somewhat more viable than any other option should be pursued. Uh, And that seems like the path to go down, but there's nevertheless seems to be an unresolved conflict of, okay, so it gets rid of some of the worst aspects of tapped Hartley, but at the same time, do we in fact want uh, the NLRB and labor law the way it is? Is it in fact restrictive of uh, of unions pushing for for greater um, workplace uh, freedoms? That's that's how he frames it. That we want freedoms over rights. And but then what
2: would the next step be in his argument? Um, like you know what I mean? Because like
13: because there has to be like it's not like you're you're
2: like all right, let's drop the. The whole push for um, the PRO Act, let's drop the the push to kind of legislate these things. Like, how would how would we get from he, here to there um, without empowering unions through law? Um, okay, hold on.
13: Well, I'm, just, I'm literally going to just look at the conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: well, while you're while you're looking it up, I was going to say. Uh, I mean, I think that one way to to start to think about this this kind of labor freedoms, you know, framework, which um, you know obviously right as kale just said you know situation that we're in you know that the, the act, you know all, all the stuff that does should definitely be pushed for uh but there's there is this whole other category of problems with the american framework of labor law that i think might um go more directly into the uh, labor freedoms point which is the kind of thing that like sean richmond was talking about uh when, uh when when he was on uh like how um the the whole nlrb structure uh, you know, forces uh unions to uh to suppress wildcat strikes, uh mm-hmm. so uh so that like when uh uh you know when like some of the the uh, Rocket uh announced they weren't gonna perform uh for uh, Donald Trump, uh the uh uh like the, the union had to like uh issue the strong word thing said, no 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 you can't do that, right? You know, because uh because they're uh, as part of their their role as you know as the uh, representative of the entire workforce, you know that they they'd, they'd get in trouble if their members uh, you know did something like that. So they have this really strong uh, you know legal uh, legal obligation. So I mean I don't know what exactly the uh, the legal reforms would be that would um, you know that that would remedy that or like if you even do like the stuff Richmond was suggesting that you know you sort of experiment with minority unionism uh, and things like that. But at least I think maybe if you're if you're kind of thinking about that stuff or you're worrying about that stuff, you know, like that might get you to like, that might get you a little bit more into the mindset of that, you know, labor freedom, not just, you know, labor rights of you.
13: Right. I think that makes sense. Um, and again, I think his, the, the driving uh, like the, the premise that he's uh, that's undergirding this basically, I mean, it is in fact like a, a political program of, you know, we should, We should take this route over this other route. Um, My understanding is that uh, he is saying that this would lead to like having greater autonomy would also mean, uh, you know, is a greater chance of greater democratic uh, norms and cultures internal to unions that uh, that it does in fact spur greater rank and file efforts. Um, And this is he had a, had a, a follow up piece that was critical. Supportive, definitely supportive, but also critical of the uh, Bernie 2020 uh, platform up for labor. Because, you know, while of course there's obvious good things that he would support, such as sectoral bargaining in there, uh, at the same time, it necessarily also does uh, kind of work within the framework of, you know, we have the leadership of these unions that are in actuality. Fairly conservative in this moment, and have been for the last few decades, uh, and that they would be the ones leading the charge rather than trying to spur on greater uh, militancy from the bottom up. And again, it's you know it's hard to say how we get out of this moment. I mean, if if we knew, uh, you know, this debate wouldn't be happening, that we we'd have a much clearer sense of well, okay, we actually know strategically, we start at this point, we work here. And, and, you know, once we get through this obstacle, we move on to the next thing. And uh, I just don't know if we have enough, like, even just empirical evidence. And so, I again, that's why I find Dimmick's case so interesting to look at, like, there really are only a few uh, pieces of evidence, like historical trajectories in different countries that we can examine and, and consider for... You know, how do we uh, rebuild a labor movement, or in their case, initially, how do you re- how do you build a labor movement from a place of structural weakness and uh, and political weakness, and uh, and again, you know, part of Dimmick's argument also is that you know we go the labor uh, the labor law route because of the way the the U.S. state develops compared to the way the Swedish and uh, other Nordic country states develop, and it's that they're uh, later developers than, than the U S. And so in some ways it necessitated more independent action. Um, so again, that's the, you know, with the, the neoliberal state kind of, you know, it seems like we've hit the dead end of neoliberalism and yet there's absolutely nothing in front of it yet. Uh, and, uh, I don't know if it's possible to actively change it or we just got to ride the wave through hell right now <laughs> uh but it, it's just it i don't know i wanted to throw that in there just a little quick guess of, i didn't even this was ben's idea i didn't want to come on to like have fake make the case for matt dimmick but i just find it it's like one of the most interesting ways to think about uh labor organizing you know just the <laughs> To what extent do we even pursue uh, labor law reform versus uh, some other option? Um,
1: yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. So, uh, gonna have to read that. Uh, so, um,
2: we should have a we should have a later conversation once we both actually read that. And, and yeah, we, yeah. all
13: three of us have read it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's what what's all all of us have, uh, have have read that? We'll have to have another conversation.
2: Yeah. About no, I, I assume that Kay already had. Read it. So I was adding us as the people that
13: haven't
1: yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm
13: remembering it live.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so um, I should say too, um, uh So uh, uh, Kale is the uh, is the is the behind the scenes uh, YouTube mastermind for uh, for Jacobin, uh, and uh, he's he's gonna be back on uh, on the channel. Uh, Even before the uh, the you know the the labor freedoms uh, conversation, whenever that happens, Uh, he's going to be back on the channel on uh, April seventh because we we do you know been doing this uh, uh, this weekly uh, series of live streams where we uh, we talk about movies. Uh, We're actually taking this Wednesday off because it's St. Patrick's Day, but uh, but the we. I
2: definitely need to take this Wednesday off. Last last week it was an everyday like.
3: At
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, but, uh, normally, uh, Boscar keeps Kale uh, chained to his computer on Wednesday nights. Uh, so he, uh, he can't, uh, he can't join us. Uh, but on, uh, on April 7th, the, uh, the Jackman show is going to be off and he's going to, uh, join us to, uh, to talk about the shining. Uh, mm-hmm. and now it's, uh, April 7th is actually my birthday. So I, I reserve the right to be genially drunk during this conversation, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I, I am I am still uh, still looking forward to that uh, and to uh, to talking uh, to uh, talking to Kale again. Then uh, should uh, plug before we go on uh, Friday for the uh, Philosophy Friday live stream. Going to be continuing the discussion with Jennifer about uh, the Ship of Theseus and uh, personal identity uh, for um, on uh, Sunday for the Sunday night uh, debate breakdown live stream. Uh, we're, that's also going to be a part two. Uh, we, uh, we are, we're going to uh, be, uh, we're going to be doing, uh, finishing up uh, watching uh, Michael Albert's uh, debate with, uh, with destiny. Did, did he
2: um, really stream a, a stream of you guys watching him? Uh,
1: oh yes. Oh yes. Yes he did. Uh, it's, it's called somebody, somebody actually just, uh, just said it to me. It's, it's, uh has some uh, what's the, uh, what's, what's the name of this thing? Uh, it's, it's, uh, the actual title of it, he posted it on on YouTube. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so his his video of like he he he's, he watched like the first hour of our stream watching this. So, uh, actually, here let me just do the quick uh, the quick screen share. This is the uh, this is the title uh, they uh, they put on this thing. Uh, it's uh, um. <laughs> Uh, leftist professor brings friends on to dunk on destiny. Uh, so leftist
2: just, professor brings friends on to dunk on destiny. So much dunking, very very bad, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Which I don't really think is what's going on. I mean, there was like a minute of friendly Badger at the beginning about how, uh, uh, you know, about how it's hard to hear the name destiny and not think that it's a stripper. But like other than that, <laughs> like it's. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, other than that, I mean, like, I mean, I guess, I guess the other thing people got mad about was that like Brent was one of the guests and he, he, he brought up that, you know, Destiny went through like two boxes of pizza during that debate. But like, uh, those are the only things that I think could be construed as dunking. I mean, otherwise it was just the sort of usual, uh, debate analysis. Uh, but, um, we should, we should definitely finish the, uh, the debate section by, by doing a, a, a stream <laughs> watching, a stream watching that. Uh, like
2: that uh, when TMBS did the did um Anna dunking on Dave Rubin and they watched the video of Anna dunking on Dave Rubin, watching the video of Anna. <laughs> I, that was, I think that was the best the the most watched clip we ever had at the time was like she was watching yeah. Dave Rubin get it dunking on her, dunking on him. Dun-
1: <laughs> but <laughs> you get the uh, live camera of
13: we- them watching the stream. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <That's> like- <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, but next Monday, uh, Abdul Al-Sayed is gonna be on talk about his uh, his new book, of, uh, his, his, uh, his new book about Medicare for all. Uh, and Natalie Scherer is going to be on uh, during the, uh, during the second half, uh, talking about uh, strategy uh, for, uh, for, for achieving, uh, for achieving Medicare for all. So uh, should be really good stuff. Uh, we'll uh, see uh, everybody, uh, everybody then uh, and uh, appreciate everybody for, uh, for, for watching and left is best. Left is best.